So before we jump into our questions for tonight, would you like to introduce yourself for the, for the people that don't know you, that haven't met you yet here at Redeemer? Yeah, so I'm Michael Vlock. Yeah, I was actually here last January. That's right. I'm uh, teaching ago. a class. And so basically the short version is, is uh, I've been teaching uh, theology for uh, 17 years at the seminary level, uh, master's level, doctoral level. And so I've, I've, I've focused on areas concerning church, uh, Israel, end times, things like the millennium, day of the Lord, those sorts of uh, things. So that's what I think we'll be talking about tonight. So I did, but I've, like I said, been doing that for 17 years. Um, I got a wife, Holly, and four kids and live in, near Raleigh, North Carolina. So that's a little bit of my background. Right on. Well, we're going to jump right in. So I've organized these questions in various ways. So to so for this service, we're going to be talking about some introductory matters, as well as the rapture. The next service, we'll talk about the tribulation period primarily. So to get us started, I want to ask you about um, how to interpret the Bible, because as we've studied these things here, um, it seems to at least the pastors here that that everything boils down to how you stu- how you interpret the scriptures. Would you agree with that? And then, what would be some major principles for Bible study that you would that that, that you would hold? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I w- I would say we believe in uh, the concept of literal hermeneutics, sometimes called grammatical historical hermeneutics, where you're paying attention to the grammar the history of the, of the writer and the audience and the historical setting. So, you know, we believe that God inspired all scripture all the way from Genesis one through revelation 22, and that all scripture contributes to the storyline of the Bible. And so we, we believe that we need to be uh, diligent to study all aspects of scripture, not just certain parts. Um, Sometimes in church history, uh, things like Bible prophecy and old Testament, sections talking about Israel have been spiritualized. So we believe in a consistent, literal, grammatical, historical understanding to all scripture. We apply that to all the passages of scripture. And then we believe that if you're doing that and doing it well and accurately, that not only will you understand each passage of scripture, but you'll understand how all the various passages tie together. So sometimes in church history, there's been the call for spiritualizing text or allegorizing text or believing certain passages in the New Testament override the meaning of passages in the Old Testament. So we're just saying good interpretation principles to all of Scripture, understanding that God was moving in, in all the authors of the Bible to write what they did. So what the human authors wrote is what God intended. So there's not dual and double meanings. There's not like, well, human meaning gets you up to here. And then there's this secret divine meaning beyond that. Uh, we, we believe that <clears throat> in the clarity of, of Scripture, that, of course, there's sections that are harder than others, but if we're consistent in our what's called hermeneutics, Bible interpretation principles, we can understand the Bible storyline. So, when it comes, so this, this really becomes the dividing line between various views of end times, and it, it it boils down to: Do you take Old Testament prophetic passages <laughs> literally, or do you, or is there some sense of spiritualizing? Now, the response is going to be. Well, the New Testament authors spiritualized Old Testament prophecies, and so we can too. And so how would you respond yeah. to that question? Yeah, well, I would say, first of all, the New Testament authors are not doing that. Some people will claim yeah. that the New Testament writers are giving a different meaning. They're reinterpreting, interpreting, overriding uh, the message of the Old Testament prophets, including passages about Israel. So we just deny that. 
So we're believing all passages make a contribution and that later sections of scripture, including the New Testament, will harmonize with what came earlier. And yes, sometimes there'll be new information, like New Testament tells us explicitly, there's two comings of the Messiah. So you have that sort of thing. But we, we believe if you're using good hermeneutical principles, you're going to understand uh, that the, that there's a plan for Israel, that God's working out his kingdom purposes, and those sorts of things. And is there a pattern in the fulfilled prophecy that we have in the Bible already that helps us understand future fulfilled prophecy that, that hasn't been fulfilled yet? Yeah, so I, I think what you're seeing is, is uh, the, the Bible's made up of a lot of prophecies, and there's even things predicted in the Old Testament that in Old Testament times started unfold literally. Yeah. So like in Genesis 12, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and there's going to be this land. And, and you actually see those things start to unfold literally in, in the Old Testament. So we're seeing a pattern of literal fulfillment, even within the Old Testament. And then when we get to the New Testament, we see that the New Testament writers are being literal with, with the Old Testament as well. So we, we believe in continuity of, of, of Old Testament predictions and then New Testament fulfillment. Yeah, no, that's helpful. And then so if somebody were to say, well, well, there is... There are different genres in the in the Bible, and the genre that we are interpreting should determine the kind of hermeneutic, the kind of interpretive principles that we bring, so that we should bring a kind of symbolic, typical, um, spiritual fulfillment aspect to prophecy, even though we would never do that in any other parts of the Bible. How do you how would you respond to that? Well, I would just say literal interpretation takes into account the various genres of the Bible prophetic sections and narrative sections and legal sections. So we don't have to invent a different hermeneutic when it comes to Bible prophecy and, and those sorts of things. So we just believe that if you are just taking it for what it says, you're going to see the, the plan unfold uh, in history. And that's really the idea is that, is that we're, we're, we're seeking by God's grace and the work of the spirit to understand the text as it was given to us. Right. And not bringing in theology ideas into a text, but letting the text speak for itself. Yeah, so we're letting the message of each passage speak for itself, and then we're seeing that all of it harmonizes. So it is a, that is different than what some will say is, you well, you have to use the New Testament to reinterpret Old Testament passages. We don't believe that's the case. We believe all Scripture harmonizes. All Scripture makes contributions to God's plans. That if you stay consistent with that literal grammatical historical approach, you're going to come to right conclusions. So I like to call that passage priority in the sense that the meaning of each passage is actually found in that passage, no matter where it's found. And then liter then other passages of scripture will be consistent with that and will harmonize with that. And I think when you do that, you will see continuity, similarity between what was stated and predicted in the Old Testament and then fulfillment in New Testament times which will include the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So there are going to be certain things that were fulfilled literally with the first coming of Christ, and there'll also be things that will be fulfilled literally with the, with the second coming. So it, it seems to make sense, though. Like if you just, you just teach the idea, like we, we're New Testament Christians, we read the New Testament primarily, and we, we use the New Testament to understand the Old Testament. Like there seems to be a just a given to that in the sense yeah. of like, that, that makes sense because we're, right. we're, we're not under the old covenant, we're under the new covenant, right. all of those things. And so how do you, 
Yeah. Well, how do you respond to that? To the, to the New Testament priority idea that, hey, this is here. Is, we, it, it makes sense that we would yeah. read the New Testament as yeah. a priority over the Well, Old. I would just say Jesus and the New Testament apostles, they don't view themselves as reinterpreting the Old Testament. That's right. They view their message as being consistent and literal fulfillment of, of the Old Testament. So we just, uh, we don't go along with that assumption that, oh, because we're dealing with the New Testament there, we're going to use that to reinterpret our earlier sections of scripture. We believe that all of it harmonizes. And again, I think if, 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 if you study it, you'll actually see that later writers of scripture are being consistent with what came before. That's true of later Old Testament writers with, with the prophecies of earlier statements in the Old Testament. And it's true for the New Testament writers when it comes to how uh, they view the Old Testament. So I, I would deny that there is any sort of, uh, oh, what comes later is going to tell us what the, what the original, what the real meaning is of an earlier passage, if that means that it's different in any way. Yeah, I remember saying in one, I think in the, one of the services, the last time I preached was that if, if we're supposed to read the Bible symbolically, that that is God's intended way for us to read it. Then I saying this tongue in cheek, but I, I would, I would apologize to Christ when I stand before him for just taking him at his word. Like I just, I just took what your word said and believed what it said. Right. Didn't, didn't try to interpret it. And so, so in a sense, like if God is going to communicate and communicate clearly, he's just going to mean what he said. Right. By what, by what is written. Yeah. That's part of the clarity of scripture is that. Of course, there's certain sections that are harder to understand than others, but we believe the Bible is clear and that later passages of Scripture are going to harmonize with what came earlier. So what happens at this moment is people say, well, that's not how the early church read the Bible. The early church read the Bible differently. And so how do you, how do you respond to that? Well, I do think that the early church of the first 200 years was actually quite literal (laughs) with what was found in the Bible. Now you're going to hit, you're going to hit a, when you, once you start to get into particularly uh, into the mid 200s and into the 300s, and particularly get to the 400s, there's going to start to be a lot more allegorical interpretation. There's going to be a lot more spiritualization of scripture and physical promises and those sorts of things. So there's no doubt that I, I think the church is going to go off track hermeneutically, Bible interpretation principle to start to over-spiritualize a lot of things. But, but I actually believe that the earliest church basically of the first 150, 200 years was quite literal with the Old Testament, there were expectations of the significance of Jerusalem, a future tribulation period, a coming Antichrist, a coming salvation and restoration of Israel. So there's a lot about a prophetic um, text that were taken quite literally in the early church. But once you start to get move beyond that initial period of church history, there is a shift towards allegorical interpretation. There was a man named Origen who was very significant, who took the church more that way. Uh, individuals like Eusebius and eventually Augustine in the late 300s, early 400s, start to go to a much more spiritualizing, allegorical hermeneutic, which led to uh, conclusions that we wouldn't agree with when it comes to end times. And did they, was, was that a, was that something that they started doing based on their study of the text? Or is that something they were doing because there were philosophical ideas that they already believed that they brought. I think some of them were enamored with Greek philosophy, which tended more towards allegorical interpretation. So there's some historical factors in looking towards Greek philosophy that tended to make some theologians become more in the allegorical spiritual camp. 
So question here, what does it mean, please, I'm just reading it, what does it mean, please, with an example of a literal teaching of Revelation versus a symbolic teaching? Well, I think a literal t- interpretation would be just like in the Old Testament prophets and the Olivet Discourse, that there's there's going to be a, a coming day of the Lord intense tribulation period, which is going to lead to the return of the Lord and then a, and then a kingdom. And, I, and so when you read Revelation 6 to 18, it talks about a literal tribulation period. Revelation 19 talks about the second coming of Christ to earth. Revelation 20 talks about a kingdom of Christ uh, upon the earth. And so that would be literal. Uh, but oftentimes with, with spiritual, I mean, to give uh, one example, there's a lot of people that would say, well, Jesus's millennial kingdom occurs before the second coming of Christ. And it's like a spiritual kingdom in this age. So that would be more of a spiritual sort of understanding instead of just taking it literally that, hey, there's tribulation, the Lord returns, and then there's a kingdom. So a more literal approach would see that, which by the way, is taught in the Old Testament prophets and in Matthew 24 and 25. Mm. So, well, so we believe that you're, you're seeing that with a literal approach, but, and, and then others oftentimes will say that the, the day of the Lord and the tribulation period is basically just hard times throughout this whole entire church age that we're living in. So I think when it comes to like the day of the Lord and then the kingdom and those things, we take more of a literal approach, see it more futuristically, whereas others might spiritualize it and just see it as more like occurring in this age. Yeah, we'll talk about it at the 1030 tomorrow, but when we talk about the millennium, but an easy, easy answer to this question is Revelation 20. Does the phrase thousand years actually mean a thousand years or is it really symbolic of just a long time? Yeah, and the thing is, if you look at the numbers in the book of Revelation, they they seem to be pretty literal. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, you got seven churches of Asia Minor, um, the, the the timing of the last half of Daniel's 70th week with the three and a half month period, that's referred in Revelation. So when I, when I look at the numbers of Revelation, they seem to be, I, I don't read Revelation and see this pattern of, oh, here's a number, it's used, it's used symbolically or spiritually. And so when we get to the issue of a thousand years, it just seems like the best way to take it is to refer to a thousand years, which is, which is quite a long period of time. And that period ends up being the kingdom of the Messiah after this age where Christ fulfills all the prophecies concerning a kingdom and everything comes together. And then after that, there's the aftermath of the eternal kingdom. Yeah. But there's really no good reason not to take the thousand years uh, as a thousand years. And by the way, the, the earliest church was what we call premillennial. They did believe that Christ would come again and that there would be a, a thousand year kingdom and it would involve Jerusalem and, and the Jews and the sort of, sorts of things that we believe today. Yeah. Another question here, what is eschatology in Christianity? So eschatology is dealing with the study of last things and end times. So when you're dealing with eschatos, the Greek term, that's, that's basically dealing with last things. <clears throat> if you put the ology on it, it's the study of last things. So, you know, about one-third, one-fourth of the Bible at the time it was written was dealing with prophecy. Now, there's certain things that have, uh, that have already been fulfilled in history, but there's still things that, that still need to come. So when we talk about eschatology, we're basically talking about future things. Now, there can be future things in the sense of like, well, what happens to the, to the individual? Um, what happens to a person when they die? What about, you know, heaven and hell? And then there's what we could call cosmic eschatology, which refers to things like the coming day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, the rapture, the millennial kingdom, the eternal state. So there's a sense in which you can look at eschatology like on a personal level, like what does death mean for me? Where will I go if I'm a believer? Where will I go if I'm an unbeliever? Um, what happens when I stand before Christ personally? 
but then there's also this, this cosmic level. So one of the things that we believe is there have been significant fulfillments of a lot of prophecies in history and at the time of Christ. But when it does come to like the coming uh, day of the Lord, the rapture, the second coming of Christ and the millennial kingdom, we're futurist in the sense that we still think that there are several major prophetic events that still need to happen from our standpoint in history. Yeah, and, and let me just reiterate again that the reason we did a series like this is for truth and advertising. We know that many of you don't agree with the things that we're saying, and that's fine. Um, we just want to let you know where we're coming from. So these are the things that you're going to hear from us. This is how we understand the Bible. And you're hearing today, here's why we understand the Bible the way that we do. And so you, you mentioned the rapture, and I've got a number of questions about the rapture here. And so uh, a couple of them were, do children and babies get raptured? The Bible doesn't state explicitly. I mean, there are patterns in Scripture where like when judgment is coming, that family members associated with God's people who he's working at times, they, they end up benefiting from the escape from uh, judgment that occurs at certain times in history. You know, when you're dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah, there's a rescue of families at that particular point. Um, Noah's family benefits from what God is doing with Noah. So it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, the, the scripture doesn't state explicitly, but it wouldn't surprise me if, if when you're dealing with uh, babies and that sort of thing, that if they God's wrath is being poured out upon the world that perhaps they might be protected from that and evacuated from the day of the Lord, just like believing, um, believing persons would be. So I, if I had to guess, I, I think they will be, but the scripture doesn't say explicitly. So this question is, what is your position on the argument that the early church did not believe in a pre-trib rapture and it was not until John Nelson Darby came on the scene that it became a thing? There's no doubt that when Darby comes on the scene in the 1800s that you get really specific belief in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. But there, there are statements in church history before that. People like William Watson, Lee Brainerd, people are associated with the pre-trib research center. Pre-trib research group have documented a lot of those. So it's not true that there has never been discussion of the church escaping the wrath of God for a while before this before the second coming comes. Now, there's going to be debate, well, how much of the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period, is wrath, so therefore is the church you know, missing, you know, is, is it taking seven years or three and a half years before? But there are statements before Darby that the church would be rescued from the wrath of God before the second coming in kingdom take place. So yes, when Darby comes on the scene in the 1800s, you're going to have much more explicit discussion on that. There's a lot more attention that is given to that. I think in the end, the main thing is going to end up being, what does scripture say? And so I, I think the case that those are a pre-tribulational mate, um, they're going to deal with the historical claims and arguments and that sort of thing. But the main thing is going to be, what, is, what does the scripture teach? So there are statements before Darby, <laughs> the church being rescued from wrath. How much of the, the tribulation is wrath will be debated. But you do have statements before Darby of a rescue from wrath. Yeah, I, I read a statement um at the end of my message on the rapture, where this author, I, I didn't put his name on here, so I don't remember the name of the author, but that he wrote in the fourth century about, quote, all the saints and elect of God are gathered together before, which is to come and are taken to the Lord in order that they may not see at any time the confusion which overwhelms the world because of our sin. Yeah. And so we may not have a full-orbed um, view of pre-trib rapture, um, in the early church, 
but we have sprinklings of it. We statements have, of escape from wrath. Exactly. There's not a full orb system, right? But there is there there are um, ideas sprinkled all throughout church history of this idea in authors uh, throughout church history. Correct. And so um, another question here has to do with the rapture. Um, well, it, here's a general question. It says. Is it important to try to convince people who have different views on certain matters of the end time that aren't true about what is true? If so, how would you go about this? Yeah, so how important is it to try to convince yeah, people? Yeah, people who disagree. Um, I would say, I mean, first of all, we believe when it comes to study of end times events that nobody's salvation is at stake. When That's right. That. So we're, we're dealing with the issue of, of disagreement of, amongst brothers, so... Yeah. So in that sense, I mean, I, I mean, we're we're called to teach sound doctrine, refute those who contra- contradict, and so for there to be debate on those issues, I I, I think is uh, legitimate. So um, I, I like to to talk. I, I assume that people are usually in good faith when they're discussing these issues, and there could be some debates on some specifics of eschatology and those matters. I think sometimes you have to make a decision on when you're talking to someone how open-minded are there. I mean, there's a difference between like an honest question and honest debate. And then sometimes people have their minds really made up and they might be antagonistic towards the view that you hold. If I find somebody to be antagonistic and their mind's just super made up and they're hostile towards views that I hold, I usually don't engage that much. But I would say for somebody that's act- acting in good faith and they hold a different view, that it's that it's good to talk about, uh, talk about those issues. And of course, when it comes to eschatology, there's going to be perhaps difference in importance when it comes to uh, to various issues. So we have to use a little bit of discernment on what's being d- discussed. This is another, along those same lines, it is, do the pastors hold to their view of eschatology because they're master's grads or because they've done a thorough study of all eschatological positions? And I, I love that question because what I love about you is that you only read people that believe in pre-trib rapture view, right? And pre-millennial view, right? <laughs> I spend more time studying other views than That's I do right. my own. That's so, you know, right. I did my dissertation on has, has the church replaced Israel? I, of course, I answered no to that. But one of the things that's been noted by people that have critiqued it is that I deal with people who disagree with me more than I deal with people that I agree with. That's right. And so I, it, you know, it, you may be aware that like uh, there oftentimes ends up being theology books that are reviews books, like three views on the rapture and four views on the millennium. I devour those books. I'm, I'm constantly reading um, what other people in different positions are saying. And, and I'm convinced that the position that's been taught at the master's seminary and what I learned as a student and what I was taught, we like to call it inductive Bible study. So I, I think the uh, eschatology, the view of end times that we learned and taught is actually arises from scripture. Sometimes when I look at other systems, I sometimes think it's it's a top-down theology, that there's, there's, there's an assumption of what is true and then a sprinkling in of verses. But one thing that I found in my experience there is that those that are arguing for pre-tribulationism, premillennialism, futurism, those kinds of ideas are trying to actually anchor it in specific text. One of the things I like to do in my classes when we're dealing with the doctrine, whether it's the day of the Lord or the second coming or the millennium, I try to, I try to say to myself, like, what are the top two or three or four passages where this is taught? And then exegete or explain those passages and then talk about the doctrine as a whole. And so our, our view of the end times has to be rooted in scripture. It has to arise from from correct exegesis and explanation of specific text. Yeah, and that I would say it's not just it's not just Dr. Vlock, it's all of us. We spend a ton of time reading people that disagree with us. 
Because at the very end of the day, we just want to teach what the Bible says, yeah. you know, and there are insights that people give to text that, that, that we, if, if we didn't, if we didn't read them, we wouldn't, we wouldn't get those insights. And right. so it's very helpful. Yeah. And sometimes in the interaction, people who hold different views make good points. That's right. And they'll say, Hey, you know, and I'll, I'll just, I, I study that there's many times where and, and even when it comes to various views, I hold sometimes, you know, somebody will say, well, what, you know, if, if they're, what would perhaps would be the biggest argument against your view? Usually I can state that because I've studied what the other side has saying, but I, I, I think it is good to be able to interact with people you disagree with. And we'll get to that in a little bit. We're going to talk about the specific teachings of the rapture. Um, the things that were the most convincing for you is why you hold that, but also what are the most difficult passages when it comes to holding a pre-trib rapture view as yeah. well. And so, but before we get to that, here's another question. I love Jesus and he is the Messiah. If I were to die before the rapture, am I asleep, dead, until I meet Jesus in the air? Or what happens to us Christians? I've always believed as Christians, we go to heaven. Yeah, that's correct. Like if you were to die before the rapture, your soul slash spirit would go to be with the Lord. I mean, Paul talked about that. You know, he had to make a decision whether to stay on or go be with the Lord, because that would be far better. So we believe in an intermediate state. So if, you know, if a person dies in this age before uh, the Christ comes again, your body would go into the ground and your spirit would go, go be with the Lord in heaven. And then I think at the time of the rapture of the first Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 event would actually have a, a unification of the spirit and the body at that particular point. So you would have a, you would have a body after that. But there's definitely an intermediate heaven where you would enjoy the presence of the Lord and uh, you would be shielded from any negative things that are going on on the earth and probably have fellowship with, with saints of old. But one of the things we have to remember, though, is the intermediate state is not the final state. Sometimes people think where people go now when they die as believers is, is, is it, and then we'll all just join them someday, and that's where we'll be forever. The Bible does teach that the saints are going to return and rule and reign upon the earth. When you look at Revelation 20 through 22, life ends up being on the millennial earth and the new earth of the eternal state. So there is going to come a day where saints in heaven are going to receive glorified bodies and actually be on the earth again. But there is definitely an intermediate state. We don't believe in soul sleep. We don't believe that you basically cease to exist until the resurrection. Um, people who died hour with the Lord and enjoying his presence. And if you want to know more about those specific questions, that's 1030 and 1155 tomorrow. That's when we'll dig more into those questions. But you have to sit in the ministry center or in the, in the, uh, in the, in the, yeah, you have to sit over there. So just to clarify, here's another question along the same line. So when people are raptured, do they receive a resurrection body, even though they did not actually die? Say it again one more time. When people are raptured, do they receive a resurrection body, even yeah. though they did not actually die? Well, I'm not sure about the they did not actually die part, but yeah. So in other words, so at the rapture. So at the time of the rapture, I, I believe deceased saints in Christ and living believers receive a resurrected body. So that that's First Thessalonians four thirteen to eighteen. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. So there's a resurrection of both uh, b- believers in Christ who have died, and then those who are living at the time of the rapture event of First Thessalonians four. All of those will receive. Are resurrected bodies at that point. So this question takes us back to um, Bible interpretation and things of that nature. Um, when it comes to, so there, we talked about four different views of how to really understand the book of Revelation. There's preterism, historicism, idealism, and futurism. Right. 
we argued for futurism here. However, um, preterism is a is a view that is gaining more steam in our in our uh, in our current context Correct. of uh, evangelical or reformed Christianity. Correct. So, question for you: what What is preterism? Let, let's start with that. Preterism is coming from the Latin term, which basically refers to past. So, basically, what preterists are saying is they believe that most of Bible prophecy, including New Testament prophecy, was fulfilled in the first century, particularly fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So therefore, passages about a coming Antichrist, tribulation period, day of the Lord, the sorts of things that you see in Revelation 6 to 19, they believe that was all fulfilled in the first century leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So according to them, when you're reading like the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and 25 and Luke 21 and Revelation 6 to 20, you're basically reading history. You're reading what's in the past. Whereas we as futurists would say, no, most of the Olivet Discourse was discussed in Revelation 6 to 20 and beyond. That, that, is, that is future. That's why we would be futurists. But, but basically, it's, it's, a, it's a view that most prophecy has already been fulfilled in the past. So, and there ends up being a couple divisions of that. I won't go into too much depth, but, but usually those that are preterists do believe there is a future second coming of Christ. We want to be clear on that. Although there are a few that actually believe that, that even the return of Jesus and all its dimensions occurred at the time of the, uh, you know, of the time of AD 70. And, and some preterists don't believe there is a future bodily return of Christ, which is a very serious view. So when, um, so when it comes to preterism, what is it that made you say, you know what, I just can't, I can't hold to that view? Well, the first thing would be is there's so many things in the Olivet Discourse in the book of Revelation that haven't been fulfilled yet. <laughs> so the, abom- the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, 15, that hasn't occurred yet. The cosmic signs of Matthew 24 haven't occurred yet. The regathering of Israel uh, for salvation and restoration after the abomination of desolation has not occurred yet. Uh, Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes aglory with all of his angels, then he's going to, you know, he's going to sit on David's throne and he's going to bring the nations before him. That hasn't occurred yet. When I, when I look at the, the seals, the trumpets, and the bull judgments of Revelation, they're so global. And I think that would be another thing, too, is preterism oftentimes links fulfillment, everything concerning Jerusalem and the land of Israel. But there's so much global catastrophe described, like in Revelation 6 to 19, but there's just, there's just no way that was fulfilled in AD 70. So we do have to acknowledge that there, are, there were significant things fulfilled in AD 70, and, and Jesus talked quite a bit about AD 70, but there's so much more. So I just find preterism too, too limiting. There's, there's so much that's going on a global cosmic level. We can't just make it all Jerusalem and the land of Israel in AD 70, because there's a lot more going on. And there's also the date of writing for the book of Revelation. Yeah, <laughs> In order for preterism to be right, um, the book of Revelation had to be written in the 60s, which is highly unlikely. Uh, So, uh, you know, the the testimony for most of church history has been that the book of Revelation was written in the 90s. And if it's written in the 90s, then it it can't be the the fulfilled. It's talking about future things (laughs) that are to come. So if it's written in the 90s, preterism can't be true. So one of the things about preterism is the whole entire system in order for it to be right, you have to have a very unlikely dating of the book of Revelation, have it being written kind of in the mid in the mid sixties in order for preterism to be true. So if if that piece of the puzzle is not correct, like if Revelation was written in the nineties, like most most theologians and church historians have acknowledged, preter, preterism can't be right. And that's how and again, why bring that up? If you're like preterism, what does it even mean in these words? I don't understand them. 
this is laying a foundation for you so, because there's a ton of conversation about all of these things going on, especially on social media these days. And so uh, that's why I want to bring some clarity on this. So as we, we come to a close, I want to talk about pre-tribulation rapture. So when I spoke on that, I gave 10 reasons why we t- believe and teach a pre-trib rapture. And so for you, as you've studied this, what were some of the more convincing reasons why you said, you know what, I, I think this is the view that the Bible teaches? Because what I would say is I do, I do believe that Revelation 3.10 and 1 Thessalonians 1.10 speak about an evacuation of the church before the day of the Lord. So Revelation 3.10 says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from or out of the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And that's basically the events of Revelation 6 through uh, 19. So that, that, that I'm going to keep you out of a time period. I'm going to keep you from that hour that is about to come. And so that's pretty specific. I mean, th- th- like if I were to say to you, you know, you're going to be kept from the year 2024. You'd be like, whoa, what does that mean? Like I, I mean, in order for that to be, you'd, you'd have to almost be out of this, out of this realm that we're in right now. So we're, it's it being kept out of an hour of testing. So so that to me, I think, is evidence. First uh, Thessalonians 1.10 talks about uh, Jesus who, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And the wrath to come in First Thessalonians 5 is specifically the day of the Lord. So what I think you have is, is you have a couple very specific promises of the church being kept from the day of the Lord, kept out of that hour of testing about to come upon the whole world. And then I think the evidence indicates that Daniel's 70th week, the entire period, is is the wrath of God. So in Revelation chapter 6, the thing that starts starts things off with the seals, trumpets, and bowls is Jesus is the one who opens the first seal, and then he's in control of the whole process through the trumpets, uh, through the seals, trumpets, bowls, uh, that leads to his second coming. Jesus' is, is wrath is being poured out in that entire period. So basically, the church has promised deliverance or evacuation from the wrath of God, the day of the Lord, and we believe the whole seven-year tribulation period Daniel's 70th week is the wrath of God. So I, I'm not really big on saying, well, the first part of it is man's and Satan's wrath, and then eventually it's the wrath of God or the day of the Lord. We believe in the unity of the 70th week of Daniel. Believe, but we believe that the, it, it, that the whole entire period is the wrath of God. The fact that Jesus is the one that opens it and then finishes it shows that that whole period is there. So we're going to get more into the tribulation in our next service. Um, so you would say that that it was its texts, those two texts that were, would be the ones that convinced you most of a preacher. Yeah, it, it's basically a two-part argument. The church has promised deliverance from a time period of the wrath of God, and then yeah, that wrath of God. And then the we yeah we and then that the whole the whole seventieth week of Daniel is the wrath of God, and we believe the seventieth week of Daniel is a seven-year period. So the church has promised deliverance from wrath. And then the whole tribulation period is a time of divine wrath. So basically, it's a two-part argument. Yeah, and for me, it was the imminence. It's it's the dozen passages in the New Testament that Jesus could come at any moment. Mm-hmm. That, that that there are there's only two views that 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 can be true of the pre-trib rapture view and the Amil view. They're the only ones that can make sense, true sense mm-hmm. of a Jesus that could come at any moment because any other one 
he can come, well, we know he's going to come at three and a half years or five, five and a half years or seven years or at the end of the millennium. Like, you know exactly when he's going to come. Right. But not with those two views. Yeah, and the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. Exactly. So it's five, Jesus said in Matthew 24, I think around verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows. And I think right. he's referring to the whole tribulation period starting from uh, Matthew 24, uh, 24, 4 through 31. Now, what I like about your teaching as well, Dr. Block, is that um, because you've read so much of the other views that you, you're able to see, like, here are the strengths of every view and here are the difficulties of every view. So when it comes to the pre-tribute, there are passages that are harder for p- people who hold to a pre-trib rapture to understand or to make sense of. And so what would be some of those off the top of your head? Yeah, I'd say Matthew 24, 30 to 31, where there's a trumpet in a gathering at the end of the tribulation period. Some people say, well, that's, that's what's talked about in First Thessalonians 4. And so I actually believe when you exegete that passage that that's talking about Isaiah 27's uh, regathering of Israel with a trumpet after scattering. So that, so, so, but that's been one of the biggest arguments against pre-trib is that you have a trumpet in the gathering at the end of the tribulation period, Matthew 24, and then that's the rapture of 1st S4. But like I said, I, I, I think that passage is actually referring to the regathering of Israel. Second um, Thessalonians 1 makes a close connection between relief for saints and the judgment of unbelievers. And some people say, well, it seems to appear at the exact same time. I'm not quite sure that that is actually the case w- when you look at it. But those would be two passages. First Corinthians 15 at the last trumpet. Yeah. You know, that same idea. There are multiple yeah. last trumpets. So, yeah. So the issue, the, the issue of trumpets gets, uh, is, is there, there's a lot of mentions of trumpets in various contexts. So sometimes the trumpets is viewed as so it's there. not like, ev- like there's a, um, silver, it's not like the deity of Jesus, silver bullet. It's unmistakable. It is this and only this. It can't be anything else. Right. It, there was a three views book that put out on the rapture. And it, I think it came out in the early 80s, something like that. And one of the things that all the scholars acknowledged was all the views. There wasn't just one verse that just settled it where everybody, there's a sense in which you're dealing with a lot of data and a lot of information and you have to harmonize and synthesize various things. So if you listen to various people hold a different rapture views, they're emphasizing certain text. And then another view is emphasizing other texts. Of course, the right view is to try to, you know, is to try to harmonize all of them. But basically, scholarly discussion of the rapture has acknowledged that there's complexity to the issue, and it's it's not like the the millennium where Revelation 19 and 20 just explicitly tells you there's a millennium after the second coming. So that we have a little more, I guess, guaranteed certainty of that yes. particular than the rapture. But I, I still am very confident in the pre-tribulational rapture position. But you understand it's a little bit more of of looking at a lot of different evidence. And that's why we said before this isn't a salvation issue. Right. This is this is a subject where people who will be in heaven together disagree here on earth. We'll all have it figured out once our we're we have glorified minds and all of that. But for right. now, right. we wrestle with the text that we yeah. have. So at the same time, you can you you can you can have a strong view. Like I, I'm a very strong pre-tribulational rapture guy, but I do understand there's good people that hold to different uh, views and they have their reasons. At times, that's a little bit more of a complex issue. So you can hold both. So I, I I'm strongly pre-trib, and yeah, I respect those that are not. And usually those that are not pre-trib oftentimes will hold to other things that I believe in, a future restoration of Israel. There's a coming 70th week of Daniel. There's a future second coming of Christ. There's going to be a millennium after that. So actually, when you look at it, a lot of times in the debate over the rapture, you're actually dealing with people that agree on a lot of, a lot of other things. That's how come I'm not so apt to condemn people who hold a different rapture view because we're agreeing on so many other things. And that, I, that's what I really appreciate about 
about your teaching is that is just that because at the end of the day we want to be more agents of unity and uh, love and kindness amongst Christians honoring one another rather than fighting each other and destroying unity with uh, with other Christians right. based on issues like this. yeah that's why I, th- I think the one of the thing I tr- I try to do is just positively present what we think is the right view now of course there's going to be times where I'm going to say well I disagree with this view or that perspective. But I think our view is a very positive view when it comes to the tribulation, day of the Lord, second coming of Christ, millennium, eternal state. I feel like I don't have to necessarily spend a whole lot of time attacking other views because there's so much positive <laughs> in light of the view that we had. I, I remember one time it, I, I doing a Q&A, somebody asked me, well, why aren't you amillennial? Why aren't you, why aren't you postmillennial? I say, because the case for premillennialism is so strong. And so it's, it's, it's not, I, I, I'm not so much into attacking the other views, although I may say something, some things at times, but it's, I think we should focus on the positive presentation primarily. There is a, um, there's a lot of debate about Matthew 24 and the phrase, this generation. And, uh, and so you've, uh, you've got a Bible there, Dr. Block. So the question is, how would you respond to the partial preterist interpretation of the phrase, this generation found in Matthew 24 being that Jesus is talking to his contemporaries and, uh, and so forth. And so starting out with this, so, so we're doing it, we're, we're digging into the details. It's Matthew 24, 30, 34, 34. And so if you want to look at your Bibles right now, Matthew 24, 34. So how would you respond to this, to this? I I remember hearing, uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis saying that it's, it's an embarrassing text in the Bible because it makes Jesus look like a false prophet because it didn't, these things weren't fulfilled in this generation. And so take it away. Yeah. Matthew 24, Jesus is uh, discussing things concerning uh, the end times and his coming. Um, in verses four to 31, he just lays out the scenario leading from the uh, birth pains of the uh, uh, wars and rumors of wars through the uh, abomination of desolation, cosmic signs is coming. So he's laying out events that are to come. Then verse 24 says, truly I say this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So some people have, have thought that Jesus is saying the people that are actually living at that time had to see everything predicted in Matthew 24 occur. So they'll say, well, whenever you see a generation, it refers to the people that are living at this time. So, you know, and therefore, sometimes those outside of Christianity have said, well, Jesus was wrong. I mean, everything in Matthew uh, 24, 4 to 31 did not occur at that particular time. I think the key, my view of this generation would be that that's referring to the group of people that see the events of, see the predicted events of verses 4 through 31. So, th- so in other words, it may be true other cases where generation refers to people who are living at that time. Because this is a prophetic context, this generation needs to be understood according to this context. And so in verse 32, it says, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender, put fruit, uh, you know that its summer is near. So you, so you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. So he's talking about future events. And then he says, it's when you see all these things. And he gives the example in verse 32 about from the, the example from the fig tree, when its branches already become tender, it put forth its leaves. So he's talking about the, the coming to fruition of these events. So I believe this generation contextually, the people that see the events starting at the predicted events in verse four, which we would still see as future from our standpoint, 
those are the people that are going to see the second coming of Christ to earth. So the reason this generation is referring to a future generation is those events haven't occurred yet. And Jesus is speaking in the context of, of the future. And he will also say in verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows. So he's actually telling there, you, you can't just say, oh, it has to happen in this certain amount of time. It has to happen within a few years after this statement. He's telling you in verse 36 that when it comes to the outbreak of what I would consider to be the day of the Lord in, in this particular section, that, that, that no one knows. You can't put any, any kind of data on it. It's, it's going to come unexpectedly. So I think the key thing there is, of course, this generation is an important part to understand, but it, there's also other things going on that we all have to harmonize. The fact is, is the things that are talked about in here, like the abomination of desolation, cosmic signs, um, Israel scattering uh, with the abomination of desolation and then gathering and being restored in connection with the second coming. Matthew 24, 30 to 31 is talking about the second coming of Christ. All those things have to be taken into account. So, so the best harmonization of this is to see there's many things in Matthew 24 that have not occurred yet. There's still future from our standpoint. And then contextually from verses 32 to 36, that this generation is the people that sees the unfolding of the last days events that start in verse four. That, I think that's the best way to see it. And that view takes into account both the significance of this generation and the events that are described here. Often people who say this generation had had to refer to the first century, they have to start spiritualizing things like the cosmic signs and other things because it doesn't appear that those things actually occurred in the first century. So we, we got a number of questions on this. And so, um, so let me ask a, a follow-up question then along these lines. So when it comes to what, what you just said, I, I think was helpful. Jesus says this generation on the one hand, and then a couple verses later, he says, nobody knows the day or the hour. Yeah. And so on the one hand, he's saying, if, if this view is true, yes. that it's, that it's the generation who's listening to them, yeah. then there is a sense that Jesus does know the day or the hour. You know, He's saying it's going to happen at this time where, where just a few verses later, he says, nobody knows what's yeah. going to happen. So I think what's going on is when Jesus says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, he's actually talking about verses four through 31. So like if you're, if you're, if people, for the people living during the time of the unfolding of verses four to 31, if for those living at that time, they know they're going to, the second coming is going to occur very, very quickly. And Jesus steps back in verse 36 in light of verses four to 31 says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. So when it comes to the outbreak of the day of the Lord, nobody knows. But when it does break forth, those that see the events described in four to 31, they will see that is the generation that will see the second coming. So you have to understand that this generation needs to be understood in this future prophetic context, dealing with events that have not occurred yet. So, so when it comes to this generation, then, um, how many views are there of what this generation? Oh, there's probably like, I don't know if I could list them all, but there's like <laughs> six, six or seven. Yeah. There's six or seven different yeah, views yeah, different of, this, views. Yeah, of right. what this text Yeah. Means. So it's highly disputed. It's a highly disputed. And therefore, a good hermeneutical principle is that you got to be careful when you're dealing with certain interpretations where there's a lot of dispute. I think one of the problems with preterism is that they have to have their understanding of this generation be correct in order for their system to be true. And it, it is disputed. Now, again, that does, if something's disputed, it doesn't mean you can't have a strong conviction about it. But I think oftentimes what happens with preterism is they make that the defining issue of the Olivet Discourse. 
when there are different <laughs> credible views of it. And I personally don't think that, that their understanding of the events that are occurring, I think, I think things have to be spiritualized in order to have their understanding of this generation. Be Meaning right. they can't just take the words at face value. Yeah, I mean, cosmic signs are cosmic signs. Um, like in verse, uh, in chapter 24, or verse 29, um, the abomination of desolation, which leads towards the destruction of the Antichrist that hasn't occurred yet. Like I said, the gathering of Israel and, you know, verses 30 to 31, those are, those are events that are still future from our standpoint. So remember when you're dealing with this issue, you not only have to get this generation right, you also have to get the fulfillment of all the prophet prophetic events that are discussed right. Oftentimes I see people say, nope, this generation demands this current group of people uh, in the first century. And then there's non-literal understandings of the rest of the passage, which don't fit. So I think our view is most correct. (laughs) This generation just in its context is referring to the people that see the things that are discussed. And those are things that are still future from our standpoint. So therefore we hold to a, a largely futuristic understanding of Matthew 24. Yeah, and that's key, that your interpretation of this, of this phrase has to make sense of everything else around it, right? too. And because, if it, yeah, because that's not the only thing going on. That's right. right. There's a lot yeah. going on in this text. Yeah. And so can you, can you dig a little deeper into the idea of building your theology on a disputed text? Yeah, you just have to be careful. I mean, you want to be aware. I mean, when, when you're dealing with disputed text, it doesn't mean you can't have a conviction about it or right. a strong view. Yes. But you have to be, you know, you have to be aware of the discussion. And I personally don't think that our theological system should be built on disputed text. So I often yeah. find with preterism that it's this generation or when statements of things must happen sooner, quickly, and then they demand that had to be first century, even though it means spiritualizing all kinds of things that weren't meant to be spiritualized. So, yeah, I mean, so as, I mean, I'm not a preterist. As I look at preterist, I, I, I think they, they hone in on certain areas, but don't do a good job of explaining text that would go contrary to what they're but dr glock you only read your view right (laughs) you don't read everybody else right yeah i the 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 truth is is i like like i like to read uh, what the other side is saying um just to see if they're making any good points um i like i like to read various views books there's lots of books you know three views on the rapture and two different views of the coming of Christ in Matthew 24, different, you know, views, books on the millennium. So I, I personally felt like to know what others are saying, you know, because sometimes they may make a good point and I got to deal with it. I and mean, there's times where I'd be reading, so I'm, I have to really work through this. But I'm, it, it makes me even more convinced of the view that we're holding overall. Um, because I, remember, we have to take account of all the biblical evidence. We can't just pick sections or verse that we like and then just focus on that. We have to deal with, with it all. So we do have to deal with what this generation means, but we also have to deal with the fact that a lot of the things described in Matthew 24 have not happened yet. So if someone is sitting here right now going, I don't, I don't even know what preterism is. Yeah. Like, could you just explain that quickly? So preterism would be the view that um, a lot of major prophetic events involving the day of the Lord, the tribulation period, the coming of the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation, um, those, those events were fulfilled in the first century AD leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Um, they would say that the, basically the book of Revelation uh, from chapter 6 through 19 was fulfilled in the first century. Uh, the, the preterist is coming from preter in Latin, which means past. So when you're reading book of Revelation, all of the discourse, those things, preterists would see those as history, whereas a futurist would see future fulfillment of, of the things that are discussed uh, in those texts. That's very helpful. And then the last service, we talked about some reasons why you wouldn't be a preterist. 
Um, could you just say that quickly too? Well, I wouldn't be a preterist because the case for the futurist position is so strong, (laughs) which would be is that we're still waiting for the outbreak of the the 70th week of Daniel. The thing that kicks all of this off is in Daniel 9.27, when an antichrist makes a covenant with the people of Israel for seven years. That hasn't happened in history yet. Yeah, Herod couldn't be the antichrist because Herod didn't show up in Jerusalem and attack yeah. it and things like yeah, that. Yeah, there, there's been, there's, there's been, Nero, yeah, there's been no seven-year covenant made between an anti- Antichrist and the people of Israel. The events described in the book of Revelation, which include Israel, but they also include global catastrophe on a major level with all nations, kings, the oceans, all of the earth. There's just, there's just so many, there's so many things that are still waiting uh, future fulfillment. Plus, I think our view has rightly does understand this generation. I think when you come to the issue of like things must be soon or quickly, that those are more in the sense of imminence. They're not, they they can happen at any time. It's not demanding they have to happen right away. So so to me, the reason I'm not a preterist is because I think the case for futurism is so strong, (laughs) is that they're just are, there are a lot of things fulfilled with Christ's first coming. There are a lot of things fulfilled in the first century, but there's still a lot of things concerning the day of the Lord, the coming of an antichrist, the events of the tribulation period, the events of revelation, the second coming of Christ, the millennial kingdom, that those are not past from our standpoint. They, they are still future. And also the dating of the book of revelation. Yeah. The dating of book of revelation for most of church history, the, the, there's been the belief that the book of revelation was written in the nineties AD, but in order for preterism to be right, revelation had to be written in the, uh, basically in the mid sixties because everyone acknowledges it's predicting future events. So, even if you were totally convinced of every argument a preterist is making, you have to deal with that very serious issue. Am I going to go against the testimony of church history that Re- and believe that Revelation was written in the early 60s and that it was just describing basically calamitous events in the land of Israel when it seems to be so global? So I do think, uh, interesting about preterism, it ends up being one of those views where the, almost the entirety of the view is dependent on a dating of a book of the Bible, which is highly unlikely. Like if the book of Revelation is written in the 90s, like it most probably is, preterism can't be right. Helpful. So now, um, so we're done with that. If you're like, okay, preterism, this generation, mm-hmm. we're done with that now. So now, <laughs> now on to other questions that you asked. So another one here is prior to the rapture, assuming pre-trib, unsaved people will have the opportunity to come to faith in Jesus. Upon the rapture, the church will be taken up to heaven. Right. And so how is, so is there evangelism during the tribulation period? Yeah, there seems to be. It's probably the case. You have 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, which I take literally. They probably have an evangelistic role. There's an angel in heaven proclaiming the gospel. We know that there's people that get saved during the seven-year tribulation period that end up being martyred. So there does seem to be, now it ends up being the case that most people in that, that period will lose their lives because of their testimony for Christ. Read Revelation 6, 9 to 11. It talks about those that got saved and then believed in Christ and then, then uh, they lost their lives because of that. So there is, there is evangelism in that period, probably with the 144,000 and uh, an angel in heaven and perhaps other means. So people asked questions about this, um, but I want to expand it out a little bit to just the 70th week of Daniel. You mentioned it earlier. Can you kind of give a, a broad idea of what that is exactly? Yeah, so the 70th week of Daniel is, you know, found in Daniel 9, 27. So there... Well, you should turn there. If you brought yeah. a Bible, you should turn. 
you know, Daniel 9, 9 24 to 27, there, there's a lot of things going on in yes. those verses. But the, uh, you know, there, there, there's, it, it says in verse 27 that he, the evil prince, will make a firm covenant with the many, which would be the people of Israel in this context, for one week. Now, if you, you do, the, do the study of it, um, there's a discussion of 70 weeks, which is literally 77s, which most scholars think is referring to uh, a period of, of, of 77s of years, which leads to 490 years. Um, basically, it seems to be what verse 27 is, is stating, is that when he talks about there's going to be a covenant with the many for one seven or one week, the context is so heavily years that that is actually referring to a period of seven years. So, oh, wait, on, on that, uh, Leviticus 25, 8 says, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, yeah. so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. So this is a, yeah. so this is a way to understand this word weeks in yeah. the context of timing, years, things of that nature. Yeah. So it, it, that, this is actually one of these areas where it seems like people on all different sides agree that we're dealing, when we're dealing with seven, it's literally 77s, which is 490. And there's pretty much unanimity that that refers to years. <laughs> so we're dealing with the 490 year period. So therefore, when you get to the last one week, it's the last one seven, it's a seven year period mentioned in verse, in verse 27. So, so basically what we're dealing with is we, and w- when you, when you get to the new Testament, you, you'll, you'll see uh, predictions of the day of the Lord in Matthew 24 and second Thessalonians two mixed with um, Daniel's statements in, in Daniel chapter nine. So, like in Second Thessalonians 2, Paul talks about the coming of the day of the Lord, and then he talks about a man of lawlessness who goes into the temple declaring himself to be God. Well, Daniel 9.27 talks about an abomination of desolation uh, in the Jewish temple. So you have this mix of day of the Lord language and 70th week of Daniel language mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, the book of Revelation talks about particularly the last half of Daniel's 70th week. It's describing day of the Lord events. Uh, we believe the day of the Lord is future. We also believe that the 70th week of Daniel is future as well. So the 69 weeks of seven, 483 years, yeah. that's already fulfilled. That takes you up to Christ. Takes you up to Christ. And probably even, maybe even Palm Sunday. Yeah, the day he and goes it into says Jerusalem. that after that, Messiah, after the 69th week, Messiah will be cut off right. and have nothing. And then the people of the princes to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That is a prediction of AD 70. Daniel 9.26 predicts, Messiah being cut off with his death and the destruction of the Jewish temple. So, but, but those are events after the first 483 years. So you, so you have 69 weeks, which is 483 years. And then after that, two events, the killing of the Messiah and then the destruction of the temple. And then Daniel 9, 27 starts talking about events in the, in the future with the coming 70th week of Daniel. And it's interesting for Jewish evangelism too, because the Messiah has to come at that time. He can't, he, he, so there's there it cannot be anybody other yeah than so Jesus. 69 weeks until messiah the prince that's right which, and so it can't which, be like way off future which by the way is one of the most incredible prophecies in the bible but like that like it, it, we have the 69 weeks until messiah the prince when you run that with that 483 year grid taking into account 360 day years it it takes you to christ and some actually think it takes you to palm sunday so that's one of the most i i when i was speaking at a conference in new york city I met a guy who was a Jewish believer who got saved because of Daniel 9, 24 to 27. He said, I can't, I can't explain that any other way. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's true. It's absolutely true that, that it has to be Christ and there has to be two comings. 
yeah. because there has to be the future restoration of Israel right. after the 70th week of Daniel to fulfill all the other Old Testament prophecies, literally. And so, that, that, and so in general, then, this 70th week of Daniel, this, this last week of year, seven years, what you're saying then, we're still waiting for that. That's still future. And that is equivalent to the seven-year tribulation period. Correct. That will have what will begin sometime after the rapture of the church. Yeah, yeah. So in Second Thessalonians two, Paul talks about you can't have the day of the Lord until the apostasy comes first, which I actually think is Israel signing a covenant with the Antichrist, and then the man of lawlessness is revealed. So it's interesting as Paul brings up the day of the Lord, like he tells the, the Thessalonians, you're not in the day of the Lord, <laughs> but when these events occur, that's will indicate the day of the Lord, and then he links it with Daniel nine twenty seven. So. So even 20 years after Christ's resurrection and ascension, Paul says, the day of the Lord is still future. And then he links it with Daniel 9, 27, which indicates there has to be some sort of gap between the 69th and the 70th week. Messiah was cut off after the 69th week, but there's still events uh, that still need to occur with the day of the Lord that are linked with the 70th week of Daniel. Yeah. So who is the Antichrist? We don't know yet. <laughs> That's part Just of the interest is that, well, <laughs> right. the, 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 he'll be revealed when there is a, when there is a leader who signs a seven-year covenant with the people of Israel, probably coming from a revived Roman Empire, and that has not occurred yet. That's right. And so uh, another question here, when does the mark of the beast begin? Is it during the tribulation? I've heard people say the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast, getting microchipped in your hand is the mark of the beast. And so is that the mark of the beast or is or not? I, th I think you have to be in the 70th week of Daniel, the day of the Lord, the tribulation period, which I'm using fairly synonymously in order yeah. to understand what the mark of the beast is. So I, I, I mean, I, there, there could be some disagreements on this, but I, I, think you, I think the day of the Lord has to break forth and, you know, the 70th week of Daniel in order to know what that mark is. Now, again, there are certain, can there be stage setting when it comes to a world leader that can make decisions that impact the whole planet, um, a one world government and an economy sort of situation where everybody can be affected by instant decisions. I mean, there could be some things that are stage setting for that period, but when it comes to the actual mark of the beast, we just don't know yet. So the world, so it's not going to go from zero to a thousand. There's nothing. And then all of a sudden there's the mark of the beast. It seems like there is a ramping up, setting. there's staging right. yeah. that gets you to that point. Stage setting may be that God may, may be setting the stage for the outbreak of the 70th week of Daniel. Israel has to be in the land of unbelief in order to make a covenant with an antichrist figure. So you can believe in stage setting, but that doesn't make you a date setter. <laughs> So in other words, there may be things going on immediately before or going on before the 70th week breaks out uh, as God is setting the stage. I mean, there appears to be a, a temple in Jerusalem, a temple of God that Paul calls it in 2 Thessalonians 2. So sometime in the tribulation, there ends up being a temple of God, a structural temple that is there. So, you know, what if, are there plans for that before that? I mean, it could be built in the tribulation period, or perhaps it could come before. So there could be a little bit of that. But when it comes to it, we, we don't date set. <laughs> And yeah, go ahead. Um, so this is off topic, but I've heard you answer this question. And um, so it just seems like people, it, it actually builds off of this. So people don't like the view that we're teaching because of sensationalism yeah. in the past. And so because of that, it's like, I don't want to be that. Right. So then it's just, I'm going to be some other with the bathwater. So can you speak to that? Yeah. 
I mean, there can be correct views of end times and then sensationalistic understandings of it. So if somebody ends up, you know, there's been people sometimes that have predicted the, the rapture, the second coming of Christ. And then, then when it doesn't happen, that's like a black eye on those who believe, you know, in, in a rapture. So you, you can have those. So in other words, there, there's no doubt that people can, in a sense, kind of deal with things that may be true, but then sensation, make it sensationalize it in a way that's not right. And so, but that doesn't mean that th- that belief in a future restoration of Israel and a pre-trib rapture and those things are wrong. So I think, I think what, it, what ends up happening, and sometimes you do get people that may be connecting, are always connecting events in the news with future events, almost giving the impression that the day of the Lord's going to start tomorrow or something like that. So we, we have to be, so what it was, I think what's ended up happening in the last 20 years or so is some people have looked at sensationalistic aspects of what we could call pre-tribulationism, futuristic premillennialism, and they say, well, I, I don't like that. That's not right. And then they may just jump to a totally different view. <laughs> I will personally say that I, 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 I think a lot of the people that may be rejecting the sort of uh, uh, end times system that we're talking about, I, I don't necessarily find it always to be very well thought out, like structurally dealing with what we're saying on a theological, foundational, exegetical level. Sometimes it ends up being a reaction against Oh, I, I don't like what Hal Lindsey was saying. I found that to be sensationalistic. I saw a guy on cable news who was trying to link an earthquake of today with Matthew 24. So we have to be careful <laughs> that um, we don't we don't want to be sensationalistic ourselves. But on, on the other side, the the foundation of what we're saying concerning premillennialism, future of Israel, biblical arguments for preacher rapture, coming day of the Lord, those things are very very solid. But that's why I asked you who is the Antichrist to, yeah. to help people understand. Like we're not. We don't hold our view because of some teacher, some celebrity person. Right. We hold this view because we believe it's taught in the scriptures. Right. And the sensationalism, we look at the sensationalism and go, we're, we're not that either. Yeah. We're not date setting. We're yeah. not identifying yeah. the Antichrist. Yeah. We're not looking at various things in the news and go, well, there it is. That's the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and blah, blah. And we don't do any of that stuff. We're just saying, right. here's what the text says. Correct. And, this, and the, these texts then create the system of theology yeah. that we build. So there ends up being, I, you know, what we call a scholarly aspect to what we're saying. Yeah. A scholar, you know, what's called this, you know, futuristic premillennialism or dispensationalism. So there is a very well thought out scholarly uh, with, with good interpreta- Bible interpretation principles, very sound views on, on the millennium, on Israel and those sorts of things. Now, if you end up having some people that emphasize certain things or sensationalize things, that doesn't make the structure wrong. Right. And so sometimes those of us that may be more into the kind of the uh, the inductive, scholarly, perhaps even academic side of just trying to look at this whole big picture, we see a lot of people who look at the sensationalizers and then reject what we've been saying structurally, and that's right. a little that's a little bit frustrating. Yeah, so, like I will say this: like uh, there is a big movement against what we believe when it comes to these events, but I can assure you, it has not come from because our view has been defeated structurally. <laughs> I read all the views books. I'm reading all of those, like the view that we're presenting as a whole has not been defeated. There's been an emotional reaction against it. Uh, And of course, there's good people on all different sides or whatever. But if you see people rejecting the sort of things we're talking about, it's not because it's been defeated at a scholarly level. No, that's very helpful because I, I, that's my fear is that that rejecting or accepting a certain view 
is based on, well, this celebrity preacher believes this and this celebrity pastor yeah. believes that. And so I'm, I'm one of those guys. And so therefore I believe everything they say. And we're yeah. going, no, wait a minute. We don't, we don't care what other people believe. Yeah. We just want to know what the Bible teaches. And based on the hermeneutical Bible study interpretation principles that we bring to the text, this is the view that we hold. Correct. Right. So back to a, a question about the tribulation. So just to clarify a question you asked earlier, can people be saved during the tribulation period? Yes, and we know that they are. Um, there are, like I said, there's 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel that are, that, are, that are saved. There are Gentiles that get saved during that period. Um, those, they're discussed in Revelation chapter 7. So there, there, there's people, there are definitely people that get saved and will... You know, in Revelation 20, verse 4, even talks about those who gave their lives for Christ, those who are martyrs. And then in the context of Revelations, particularly martyrs within that 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period, they come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. So um, there's definitely people getting saved in the tribulation period. So because the bulk of the book of Revelation speaks about this 70th week of Daniel, one of the questions we were asked is, can you recommend good Bible study resources for studying Revelation? Well, I would say the, to, to start is, uh, I know it, it technically on the site, it's a little more academic, but still very readable. Um, I like Dr. Robert Thomas's two volumes on uh, the book of Revelation. I, I think everybody should have that. And of course, it's a scholarly work and he deals with Greek and those sorts of things, but I find it to be very readable. So I, I think uh, that, would, that would definitely uh, be a place to start, I think. Yeah, anything else on a more popular level for... The book of Revelation for the, specifically. For the book of Revelation. Yeah, I think John Walvoord's commentary on, on, on Revelation is good. I'll have to do a little more thinking. Maybe in another session right. I'll drop it. But I, I would say right. those two sources in particular, yeah. And so um, with the 144,000 in Revelation, it says that they're sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, but not mentioned, but some are not mentioned from the tribe of Israel. Like it says Dan is not mentioned there. And so... Do these represent this 12 tribes or are Gentiles included in this 144,000 who go out to evangelize the world during the tribulation? Yes, I don't think the Gentiles are a part of the, the 12 tribes. I mean, they're, so they're not part of the 12 tribes of Israel mentioned in Revelation 7. So in Revelation 7, I think around verses 4 to 8, it specifically mentions 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then it mentions Gentiles after that, they get saved. So I think Gentiles are part of that. Um, if you look at the very li if you look at various lists in the Bible about the twelve tribes of Israel, sometimes you get a little bit of a, a, they're not the lists don't always say the same thing, but they still end up referring to ethnic Israel. So very helpful. Is there so this question is there are different views about the Holy Spirit being here during the tribulation seven year period? Can you can you help us understand the role the work of the Spirit during the seven year tribulation period? Yeah, I mean you know in uh, you know, 2 Thessalonians 2, it talks about a restrainer being taken out of the way so that the Antichrist figure can pop up. So some, you know, people think that the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit may be removed during the tribulation period. That doesn't mean that, I mean, I would agree, I, I, that'd be, I would hold that view as well. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's not omnipresent anymore or that he can't indwell believers, but it does seem like his restraining ministry is removed at that particular point. Can we say the question? I, I may be leaving out the last part. Yeah, so just the work of the Spirit during yeah, the yeah. tribulation period. Yeah, so the work of the Spirit. So what I would say is, is I, I, I think what's particularly changes from this age to the tribulation period is the restraining of evil that the Holy Spirit does in this age 
there's a sense in which that ministry is removed so that the, so that the Antichrist can come on the scene and there's evil like we've never seen before. I still think that the Holy Spirit's involved when people get saved. I still think he's, he's indwelling believers and he's still omnipresent. So I think it's particularly that restraining of evil um, that that's removed. And, you know, and some people think, well, perhaps that's restraining of evil would also be linked with the fact that if, if the church is raptured and doesn't go through the tribulation period, the, the, the church's ministry of which has a salt and light uh, impact on the world, that would also be gone. So I do think the Holy Spirit is still around and active, but that restraining of evil would be different in that period. So I've got some questions about the judgment of believers. Yeah. Now, what I've what I've talked about and or implied in some of the other sermons, uh, especially in John five and John mm-hmm. six, is that that takes place after the rapture in heaven, the bema seat of Christ. Yeah. And so some of the questions we have here are: if God forgives and forgets our sin, what will we be held accountable for? at the beam of seat of Christ on our judgment day. Yeah, so our sins are taken care of with the cross. So in other words, there is no punitive um, consequences for sin for the believer who's in Christ. I mean, the sins have been forgiven, we're in Christ. But there still is an evaluation of what we do. And there are passages like Luke 19 and others that talk about rewards based on what we do. So in a, so I do, I do think that there, there, there is an evaluation of our life and the lives of believers end up being shown to be radically different from the lives of unbelievers. And because the church is, is going to be ruling in a literal kingdom over nations, I do think positions of what you will be doing in the millennium will be part of, of, of the beam of judgment. So, um, so it, it, it appears to be the case that rewards in the coming kingdom can also be linked with that event. So you can have two things. You can have all, you're never held punitively, uh, punitively for your sins because Christ has, and the cross have brought forgiveness in that area. But there still uh, is an accounting of, of, of the good and the bad, according to one of the, the Bema Seat judgment statements there. So we, we do go through an evaluation, and I do think our rewards in the future are affected by it. So th- this might be a, a topic that you're like, wait a minute, rewards in heaven? <laughs> like, are you serious? So there's a, a book by Erwin Lutzer called um, The Believer's Payday that I would, I would recommend that you take a look. I think that's what it's called. No, that's Benware. Benware's book, B-E-N-W-A-R-E, The Believer's Payday. That can get you up to speed on this idea that believers are rewarded for their life of faithfulness here. Uh, and so make sure yeah. that so if, you're, if you want to know, like, what is that? Um, and then Lutzer's book, I think, is Your Eternal Reward. Uh, something along those lines. And so those would be two helpful books. And if you read the end of Luke 19, it talks about like when Jesus comes back, there's going to be an accounting for those who belong to him. He says like, you know, one guy, hey, you get 10 cities to rule other. Another gets five. That's right. And then there's a rebuke for somebody who didn't do very well (laughs) and that sort of thing. So the end of Luke 19 actually talks about different rewards. And, And basically the whole of 1911 through the end of the chapter is Jesus likens himself to a nobleman who goes away to a distant country to receive the rights to a kingdom. Then he comes back to reign and to reward those who are his and then judge those who did not believe in him. And there are variances when it comes to rewards at the end of that chapter. And so, um, so I want to make sure that you're aware of that so you can study that. We've talked about that here in a number of different sermons, but that would be, those are books that I recommended at that time that I would recommend again, if you want to know more about that. And really you should. Because if you're sitting there, wait a minute, I didn't think about it. I thought I'd just go to heaven and that's it. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, both talk about this judgment, yes. that there is a judgment of believers. And so make sure that you understand that as you live your Christian life. It's an important thing for you to have in mind as we, uh, as we think about these things. And so we have answered all of the questions. Oh, there's one more question. It's Revelation 2.17. And so it's a specific question. Uh, Revelation 2.17, which is, please help me understand the white stone. Yeah, so, so what is this? 17, yeah. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him overcomes to him, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So I'm going to start out by saying I haven't done a, a, a lot of research specifically into the white stone, but I do know white stones are often linked with uh, goodwill from the one who is giving it. Uh, it can it can be used in the context of like acquittal, uh, almost like in an, a court sense. So it's I think when we have the giving of of the white stone there, that that is uh, that is that is a good thing that the the believer is is receiving from Christ. This, that I think involves the, the statement that you're in good standing with me, your sins are forgiven. The fact that there's a new name written on the stone that shows that personal aspect of Christ's relationship with the believer. So it's just a beautiful expression of relationship acquittal from sin, good standing, those kinds of things. I just want to, to end this section with, um, I was going through some of your, your writings, and you said in one, in, in one place that the event in the Bible that has the most written about it, or the future, mm-hmm. is the tribulation That's period. True. Yeah. More than anything else. Right. And when it comes to the future, it's the tribulation period. Right. And so why do you think that would be? Yeah, so you have major sections like, you know, Isaiah, Isaiah 13, Isaiah 24, uh, time of distress of Jeremiah 30. So there ends up being, there's many more passages like in, uh, in, uh, Zechariah, Zephaniah and others. I mean, the book of Revelation chapter six through 1911 is basically the tribulation period. So you get all kinds of details on that. Now there's also a lot of passages, particularly in the old Testament about what the kingdom of the Messiah will look like. So I could give you a long list. Isaiah 2 and 9, 11, 65, Ezekiel 36 and 37, Jeremiah. That's tomorrow. That's yeah, so there's, there's also a lot on the key. So there's a lot on a lot of things, but it seems like uh, God wants us to understand the significance of the coming day of the Lord, which he gives a lot of emphasis, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New, in the New Testament. First Thessalonians 5 is about the day of the Lord. Second Thessalonians uh, uh, 2, 1 and 2 is about the day of the Lord. Revelation 6 through 18 is about the day of the Lord. So... Um, that is dealing with God's wrath upon an unbelieving world and is bringing uh, Israel back to himself with salvation and restoration. So I don't know if I have great re- all the explanations on the why of it, but obviously that's uh, God wants that aspect to be known, which also goes to show us that a lot of people are running away from prophecy and end times and eschatology, but there's so much in both Testaments. Uh, I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're going to ignore prophetic events to come, including the day of the Lord, you're just ignoring huge sections of scripture. And so we, we need to live in light of those. Yeah, I think it was uh, 27% of the, of the Bible is prophecy. Right. During the seven-year tribulation period, while things are happening on earth, in heaven, what you were taught is that there'll be a judgment seat of Christ for believers. There'll be the, uh, the marriage of the Lamb that will take place in heaven, and then the second coming. And so that's where we, we start now. And so a lot of people, Mike, had questions 
about the church in Israel, the relationship between the church and Israel. However, I've been, I was asked twice uh, last night about this thing called the pre-wrath rapture view. So before we get into uh, the second coming of Christ, I want to ask you about the pre-wrath view. What is the pre-wrath view and what are some of the, some of the difficulties that you may have with that view? I think key to the pre-wrath view would be is that when it comes to Daniel's 70th week, they would see the church entering into the, the seven-year tribulation period of Daniel's 70th week, including into the last half. So the church would actually see the abomination of desolation, which is talked about in Matthew 24, 15. So basically, what you're, you know, you have a pre-tribulational view where the church doesn't go through any of the, tri- of the seven-year tribulation period. Then there's like a, a mid-tribulation view where it goes through half and then escapes the last half. The pre-wrath view takes you even deeper into the seven-year tribulation period, past the halfway point. And so they think that the specific wrath of God in the day of the Lord is a pretty short, intense period of time that takes place, that starts to unfold uh, with some time before the second coming, but it's deep into into the tribulation period. So they do think there's going to be an, a, a rescue of the church, so the church doesn't have to go through the wrath of God. But probably the main difference would be is where we would see the whole 70th week of Daniel, the whole seven-year tribulation period is God's wrath, and therefore the church doesn't go through any of the seven-year tribulation period. They would see the church going through most of it and seeing the wrath particularly involving a short period of time towards the end of the tribulation period. So obviously, I think when you're coming down, the main differences between the, the pre-wrath and the pre-tribulational view, it's going to come down to how much of Daniel's 70th week is divine wrath. And I, I argued yesterday that Jesus is the one that opens the first seal of Revelation 6. He's in charge of all of that. The sorts of things that are involved in Revelation 6 with uh, wars and famines and death and all that sort of stuff is described in other portions of Scripture like Ezekiel as being God's wrath. So, so the main thing is going to be um, how much of that seven-year period is divine wrath. We're saying all of it, therefore the church doesn't go through any of the, of the, of the seven-year tribulation period. Pre-wrath people would say that it takes place pretty close towards the end, towards the second coming. There is an evacuation of the church. And then there's a short period of time where God's wrath is poured out and then the church comes back with Christ. Pretty short period after that. Thank you. So, so like I said, we have a, we, we've got a lot of questions from people here about the relationship between the church and Israel. And yeah. so the first question here is, does the church participate directly in the new covenant or is the new covenant reserved exclusively for ethnic national Israel? So do Christians receive the blessings of salvation because they're in Christ or because they're participating in the new covenant? Yeah, the church does participate in the new covenant. So we can affirm a couple things here that the, the new covenant is made with Israel, but it's not only for Israel. The purpose of the covenants of promise, Abrahamic, Davidic, and new, is to bless Israel, include Israel, but also for blessings to extend to Gentiles as well. It's like in Isaiah 52, 15, so that servant who gives atonement says he will sprinkle many nations. So it's actually predicted in the Old Testament that Gentiles would participate from this new covenant that's made with Israel. So it ends up being a both and situation. You can understand it involves Israel, but it's also going to involve the Gentiles as well. And so, you know, if you're a Gentile and you're in Christ, I mean, you're, you have a new heart, <laughs> you have regeneration, you have the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. Those are all new covenant blessings. And so that has been inaugurated. I think in this particular church age, the spiritual blessings of the new covenant have been inaugurated and we're experiencing those. Now, when Jesus comes again, around that time you have all Israel will be saved, you'll actually have all the physical blessings that are associated with the new covenant involving Israel, things that are discussed in Jeremiah 30 to 33. 
So Israel, will also, as a nation, will also be saved, experience those things. There is a remnant of Israel that today is, is participating in, in the spiritual blessings of the new covenant as well. So I think the key thing to remember is that this is a both-and situation. And by affirming that the church participates in the new covenant is not replacement theology. It's not saying the church is Israel. It's not denying that Israel is going to experience all the blessings of the new covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. You, you can affirm both. But yes, the church is participating in the new covenant because the Old Testament predicted Gentiles would be benefiting from the new covenant. Uh, second question, or another question, is uh, has to do with the overall theme of the Bible. Mm-hmm. So as you've, as you've studied the scriptures, if you were to summarize the Bible mm-hmm. in maybe a sentence, yeah. what, what would you say is the, the overarching theme of the Bible? I would say the overarching theme is the kingdom of God. Genesis 1, 26 to 28, man's original mandate, the first thing said to him was to fill the earth and to rule it and to subdue it. So that, that is that rule and subdue language is, 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 is kingly language. So I think, and, and also in Genesis 1, man is presented as a mediator to fulfill God's purposes upon the earth. So that, that, is, that is what God is pursuing. And you will see, I think when you see the covenants of the Bible, particularly like the Noahic and the Abrahamic and the Davidic and the new covenants, those are going to be the means by which God's kingdom purposes unfold in history and eventually will come, come to a culmination in the millennial kingdom. And I, I would even say what, what is expected of man in Genesis 1, 26 and 28 for a successful rule over the earth and its creatures is what Jesus fulfills in the millennial kingdom. He actually succeeds where the first Adam and the rest of us have failed. So, so and when we're talking about kingdom, we're not just talking about salvation, although that's a part of it. But we're actually talking about an earthly kingdom reign of the Messiah, the last Adam, the ultimate David upon the earth. So when we say kingdom is theme, we also understand that Jesus is at the center of that. He's the ultimate king and he has the ultimate kingdom reign. And therefore, when man sins and we're all sinners, we're going to have to be made right with God in order to participate in that kingdom. But even when it comes to like salvation, that's included in that kingdom plan. So... So I would say kingdom of God is the theme of scripture, and then the biblical covenants end up being the means and the vehicles and the instruments for how that kingdom program plays out in history. The question now is, so you hear people talking about uh, expanding the kingdom and things of that nature. So the question is, how do Christians today interact with the kingdom? Should we be more cautious in using kingdom language when it's a future earthly versus a present spiritual. I do think we, we have to be cautious. Um, Jesus states in Matthew 25, 31, that he's going to sit on David's throne and reign when his second coming occurs. So technically the kingdom that is predicted in the prophets occurs when Jesus comes again. But because we are related to him, we are united with him. We are positionally a kingdom. We are positionally related to the king. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, we are to live a kingdom righteousness. We are to be salt and light to a dark world. So the church of this age is related to the kingdom program. We are kingdom citizens. We are to live a lifestyle of, of, of righteousness. But the actual coming of the kingdom itself wait, awaits the second coming of Christ. So I, I think there is a proper sense where we could talk about building the kingdom in this age in the sense that we are recruiting through evangelism and the Great Commission others to be related to King Jesus and to follow him and to become the nucleus for that kingdom that will be established when Jesus comes again. So we can, we can affirm 
that the kingdom comes when Jesus arrives with his second coming, and yet we're related to him who is, who is king, who has all authority in heaven and earth, and we become the nucleus for that kingdom reign when it comes in the future. You can see why we asked him to come to answer your questions, <laughs> right? And so, um, so another question we were asked is, uh, are all Jews saved or just those pre-Christ who believed he was coming and those post-Christ who believe he came? Yeah, so all Jews are not saved. And so, you know, even in like Romans 11, Paul will talk about that, that God's always had a remnant. So there, there have been a lot of Jewish people, sadly, in, in history that have not believed. Now, the Bible does promise the salvation of all Israel, and God does not give up on Israel. When I've looked at all the uses of all Israel in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, it seems to be referring to uh, the mass of Israel, including leaders and people, at, at the particular time of the event being discussed. So Romans eleven twenty six does say that there is coming a salvation of all Israel. And so we take it that when that occurs, probably in the coming tribulation period, there's going to be a mass salvation of Israel, people and leaders. But there will still be some that don't. There's passages in Ezekiel that talk about that. There will be some who, when Christ comes again, will not enter the kingdom. So there is going to be a national salvation of Israel, but that does not mean every Israelite is saved. I almost think it's kind of like the opposite of the first coming of Christ. At the first coming of Christ, we could say Israel as a whole rejected Jesus, but there was a remnant. I mean, there were Jewish people that believed. I think at, at, in the future with all Israel who will be saved, it will be the mass of the nation as a whole with its leaders, but not necessarily every single individual. And, and, so, I, 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 and just to be clear, you have to believe in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. So there's no, we do not believe that just being ethnically Israel puts one into the kingdom. So we have to, because sometimes people will say, well, if you think all Israel saved, then they're just saved because of their ethnicity. No, the Bible also presents the Israel of God and the, and the true Jew as ethnic, ethnic Israelites who have believed in Christ. Yeah. So that, so clarify that. So, so when you see phrases like the true circumcision or uh, the Israel of God, uh, sons of Abraham, things of that nature, how should we understand those phrases? Yeah, so I would just say in the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 2 to 3, it predicted that Abraham and the great nation Israel would bring blessings to the Gentiles. In Galatians 3, 29, all who believe, whether they're Jew or Gentile, are, are related to Abraham, their seed of Abraham. So there, there's believing Israel, believe it, who is the, that's the Israel of God, an ethnic Jew who believes. But because it was promised in Genesis 12, 3 that Abraham would not only have a great nation, but that this great nation would bless all the families of the earth, when a Gentile like myself becomes a believer, we become seed of Abraham. But there's multiple dimensions to seed of Abraham. Some people think that if you're related to Abraham, you automatically become Jewish, even in a spiritual sense. That's not the logic of the Bible. So when the Bible talks about Israel of God as ethnic Israel who believes, when it talks about seed of Abraham, there's multiple dimensions to that. Christ is the ultimate seed of Abraham. There's also the ethnic line that is the seed of Abraham. But then there's the special ethnic line Israelites who believe, and then of course there's Gentiles who believe. So when it comes to the issue of seed of Abraham, there ends up being multiple uh, dimensions. So, so um, this question is, is go, goes back to something we talked about last night and rewards for believers. And so um, in the first sermon of the series, rewards given to the church were mentioned after they are judged. Is there any further explanation that I can find on what sort of rewards these are? Are they dependent on our lives here? Will there be more or less rewards for believers? Yeah, I don't think everybody gets the same rewards. So 
we talk, we talk about the fact that we're, we're forgiven of our sins, so we're never judged punitively for what we do. But according to the 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, give an account for what we do. And that includes the good and the bad, the, the gold, the silver, the hay, wood, and the straw. So there, there will be an evaluation of our lives before God every second of it. And uh, I do think passages like the Bema Seat passages we just mentioned Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through the end of the chapter, indicate that how we act in this age and how we serve Christ will affect what we do in the coming millennial kingdom and the eternal state. So in Luke 19, it talks about a nobleman who goes away to a distant country to receive rights to a kingdom, then he comes back to reign. That represents Jesus. And when Jesus comes again, he destroys his enemies, but then he brings his followers and say, hey, I'm going to evaluate how you lived your life while I was gone. And then there's one man who did really well, and he gets 10 cities, another gets five, and then there ends up being a rebuke for somebody else. So what we do in this life matters. And obviously, what we did for Christ just on a personal level is most important. I mean, the main thing is we want to honor him with our lives and hear well done, right? But it does also affect what we do in the future, which I don't think sometimes is talked enough about, that the saints are going to reign in Jesus's kingdom when he comes again, and how we serve Christ now will affect what we're doing in the coming millennial kingdom and probably the eternal state. So the question, will there be more or less rewards for believers? It seems like when you look at the rewards passages, like that Luke 19, that appears, it, it, it's not everybody. Everybody has the same equal salvation in Christ. But when it comes to rewards and what that means for what we'll be doing in the future, there can be variance. So God's not a spiritual communist. Right, yeah. If you want to put it that way, yeah. <laughs> okay. that, that's, that's, okay. that's correct. There, there ends up being... There ends up being differences. I even think when it comes to judgment of unbelievers, there's, there, there's differences in their levels of punishment. But when it comes to believers, there can be differences when it comes to rewards based on faithfulness. Next question has to do with Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats judgment. Mm-hmm. And, and the question here is, how does the separation of the sheep and the goats fit with the end times? Is, the, is this after the tribulation mm-hmm. and the thousand year reign? Uh, and so... Yeah, so Matthew 25, 31 to 46 talks about a sheep goat judgment. That is it. Matthew 24, 4 through 31 discusses the events of the tribulation period leading up to the second coming of Christ. And then in Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. That's the Davidic throne. And then all the nations will be gathered before him and he will sh- separate the sheep from the goats. And so that sheep goat judgment occurs after the 70th week of Daniel, which is the seven year tribulation period, which is the day of the Lord. So Jesus comes at the end of that. And then the sheep goat judgment is a judgment of living people um, on the earth at that time to see who enters the kingdom and who does not. Obviously it would be those who believed in Christ who do enter. Uh, those that are not believers, uh, they, they, they have a, a, a destiny with a, um, a judgment of fire as a result of the sheep goat judgment. So the short answer is it takes place after the tribulation period and after the second coming to see who enters the millennial kingdom for those that are living on the earth at that time. Yes. And so that means we'll get into this next service, but that means uh, humans just like us now enter the millennium with resurrected glorified saints who also return with Christ and also enter the millennium. Yeah. So I think the church has already been resurrected at the, at the rapture, which be seven years prior to the second coming of Christ. So you will have uh, res- resurrected church saints, resurrection, resurrected tribulation saints, 
We do know there's going to be procreation going on in the millennium, according to Isaiah 65. So it's probably the case that the, the believers who are living on the earth at the time of Christ's second coming that are deemed to be the sheep, they will enter the kingdom at that time. So in this age, everybody's non-glorified. In the coming eternal state, everybody's glorified. The millennium is an era, an in-between era, where you have some that are glorified and some that are not. This question is, in John 6, Jesus, in speaking about the elect, states four times that he will raise them up on the last day. So if there is a rapture, and then the tribulation, and then the millennium, when is the last day? What's the, the, the reference to Jesus? John 6. Yeah. So I, I, in, in John, I, in John 5, 20 to yeah, 29, yeah. yeah, so I mean, you get these general statements, like in other words, there can be general statements about resurrection, believers for good, the, the wicked for a, a bad destiny. And then there's going to be others. So you, know, you can have general statements like, hey, everybody's going to have to appear before Christ. Everybody's going to be judged. So in one sense, the last day is referring to last time's events concerning Christ. Um, but that does not mean that there can't be distinctions in various judgments. Like Revelation 20 comes along and, tell, and tells us that when Christ comes again, that there's a resurrection to life of people in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And then after a thousand years, there's another coming to life. So you can have both. You can have statements in John where there's general statements of resurrection for the righteous and the unrighteous. And then other passages can tell us, well, actually, there's, there can be stages. And usually what you see even in those John passages is there's a discussion of the righteous being resurrected. And then it talks about what's going to happen for the wicked. And that, that occurs in Revelation. You have a resurrection to life of righteous believers in connection with the second coming of Christ, then after the thousand years, it appears to be unbelievers. So, so the, the passages in John 5, John 6, general revelation is more specific. Right, yeah. Unfold, explanation of those right. general so again, statements. General statements of last day refers to the events concerning the tribulation, second coming of Christ and kingdom. And then later passages can give you details of exactly when things play out. So another question here is about Israel and um, their their um, their their role in the end time. Mm-hmm. So, Doctor Block, please review the principles for the promise and fulfillment of Israel's redemption as God's people in the end times. Yeah, so I've just we can go. I think Deuteronomy thirty is a great place to start. Deuteronomy thirty is a big picture passage where Israel's not even in the land yet. God tells Israel like, "You're going to go into the land." And you're going to obey me for a while and you're going to get all these blessings, but then you're going to start to disobey me. And then you're going to be judged. You're going to experience curses. And then you're going to be dispersed to the nations. But in the latter days, I'm going to save you. I'm going to change your heart. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse six. I'm going to restore you to the land. I'm going to bring these uh, blessings spiritually and physically upon you and it'll be permanent. So that's very important because it predicts that there's going to be a, a lot of history that's going to play out with Israel. They need to go into the land. They're going to be blessed in the land. Then they're going to start to disobey. And that's going to take quite a bit of period of time before eventually there's a dispersion to the nations, but then there ends up being restoration there. So passages like Deuteronomy 30, Leviticus 26 uh, verses 40 to 45 predicts that Israel would would disobey God and be, and be removed from the promised land. But then if they repent, they would be brought back into the blessings, including physical blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. So really in all the prophets, I mean, that we were just dealing with the first five books. We're dealing with Deuteronomy and Leviticus there. I mean, when you look at all the prophets, the minor prophets, the major prophets, 
They end up having major sections talking about Israel's restoration, not only salvation spiritually, but restoration to the land with physical blessings. Jeremiah 30 to 33, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65, huge sections in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36 and 37 talk about the salvation and restoration of national Israel. Uh, when Jesus was getting ready to ascend to heaven, the apostles say, Lord, is it this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus accepts the premise of the question, but then says, it's not for you to know. The times are the epics. I think in Matthew chapter 23, verse 39, Jesus said, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So it seems to be a prediction that there is coming a day where Israel will be saved. You see the significance of Israel, the uh, 12 tribes mentioned in Revelation chapter 7. So there, there's this huge corpus of data that Israel, which is an, which is an ethnic, national, territorial entity, is, remains significant in God's purposes and Romans eleven twenty six says all Israel will be saved. And interestingly, when Paul says that Romans eleven twenty six twenty seven, he then quotes Isaiah fifty nine twenty to twenty one, which is a new covenant passage, which discusses Israel as a nation being immersed in the new covenant uh, when the Messiah comes for them. So there's just a lot of data, Old and New Testaments. And I will say this. You can get you can get a, you can get some things right about events to come if you don't hold to this particular view. But if you don't understand the significance of Israel as a nation, you're not going to get a lot of this of the Bible storyline right, and you'll miss out a lot when it comes to understanding eschatology and future things. So you you guys are setting the tone for these questions. These are the questions that that you asked as a result of our five messages on these subjects, and uh, another one. That, that, uh, that was asked is Jesus took on flesh to come live among sinners when he came the first time after his death and resurrection, he ascended back to his glorified state. How would it be possible for him to come back here glorified, surrounded by sinners in the millennial kingdom? Well, earth is man's destiny. I think, I, I think sometimes we have this impression that heaven is the ultimate destiny but the thing is, there is an intermediate heaven where you go if you die today and it's glorious. But the Bible states that the millennial kingdom and the eternal state takes place on this earth. And so there's a psalm that says, the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the, but the earth belongs to the sons of men. And when God created Adam in Genesis 1, 26 to 20, he didn't create Adam and say, now get up here to heaven because that's where you're going to live forever. So the thing is, earth is man's destiny. You know that in Revelation 6, 9 to 11, when there are people killed in the tribulation because they belong to Christ, the first thing they say in heaven is, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge our blood upon the earth? And so uh, Revelation 5, 10, a heavenly throne room scene, there's this song to Jesus, and it says, you have made them to be a kingdom, these people whom Christ died for, they will reign upon the earth. And so the thing is, is the destiny of, of man is always, is always related to the earth, now, when Jesus was resurrected, he's the first fruits of the resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians 15, and he was hanging around sinners after he rose from the dead. So Jesus actually shows you can have somebody in a resurrected body being around mortals and even, even mortals uh, uh, that are sinful. So, um, so I think we have to avoid the, the, the premise that you can't have like glorified taking place on earth or ever being around unbelievers. I think when you get to the millennial kingdom, the vast majority of people are, are believers in that time. But it also talks about if anyone dies at the age of 100, they'll be thought a curse. So there, I guess there's the possibility for death at that particular time. But there doesn't seem to be any scriptural reason why you can't have glorified people on the earth and sometimes even around others that aren't saved. Another question here that was asked, uh, we've heard a few of the pastors here say that at the second coming 
of Christ when the final battle takes place that Jesus destroys all his enemies with a single word. Is that a literal word or not? Well, I would say I think passages like the, in Isaiah, the Messiah's words are spoken of as powerful like a sword. And then you see that language used in 1915. Uh, I think also in 2 Thessalonians 2, it's the power of Christ's words that destroys the Antichrist when Jesus comes again. So I, I do think that when he comes again, um, he is so powerful in dealing with his enemies, the armies against him, the Antichrist, the false prophet, Satan, all those that are arrayed against him, that the power that he speaks is involved with the defeat of those enemies. And whether it ends up being one particular word or it just ends up being the things that are saying, there's no doubt that the, uh, the authority that he is proclaiming at the time of his second coming when he comes in glory is going to defeat his enemies. Another we ha- question we have is, can you explain replacement theology and <clears throat> what, what, what the issues are with that? Yeah. So, so have you written anything on that? Yeah, I wrote a book, Has the Church Replaced Israel? <laughs> now is your doctoral dissertation. Yeah, it's my doctoral dissertation. Then okay, so you know a little bit about this question. Yeah, so... Yeah. So replacement theology is basically the view that um, Jesus is the, because Jesus is the true Israelite, which he is, and because there is a church that is in him, there's the belief that the church replaces, fulfills, or supersedes national Israel to such an extent that national Israel is no longer significant in God's purposes. So Israel becomes a spiritual entity. So Christ ends up being the ultimate Israelite. And then if you're in him, you become Israel spiritually but the key thing with replacement theology or whatever you want to call, there's different names, replacement theology, fulfillment theology, or supersessionism is national Israel gets left out of the promises given to her. So some will say, well, this is fulfillment. This is expansion, but it really ends up being subtraction because God works with national entities and he has chosen and loved, loved national Israel. So the way to understand if somebody holds a replacement theology is asking them, do you believe that Israel as a nation is going to be saved and restored when, at the time Christ comes again and will be in the kingdom of God? Usually if they say no or they hem haw on that, there's usually some sort of replacement theology going on. Now replacement theology has been taught, it goes very deep back into church history. The first reference to the church being Israel took place around AD 150. Paul did start to address replacement theology in Romans 11 when he said, God has not rejected his people, has he? God forbid, may it never be. And then in Revelation eleven eighteen, Paul calls replacement theology arrogant. And so now historically, replacement theology became a really big thing around the time of the 300s, you know, you know up until the time of the Reformation. It's been a little bit of a, of a mixed bag after that. Replacement theology, the, even the, the use of language throughout history by people in the church, talking about the church replacing Israel, there's many, many examples of that. There are people today who want to say, no, there's no such thing as replacement theology. We believe in fulfillment theology. That is the logic fallacy of distinction without difference. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like saying, I'm not arguing. I'm just yelling at you loudly trying to make my point <laughs> sort of thing. So now again, if somebody wants to say, I'm fulfillment theology, I'm not replacing, I'm not going to argue with or whatever, but just do you believe there's significance for ethnic national territory Israel in the future? If they say no, it's basically replacement theology. So that is a view that has been taught a lot throughout church history. Fortunately, since the Reformation period, there have been a lot of people that have rejected replacement theology. So today there's a lot of people that believe in it, and there's a lot of people who don't, who affirm a significance for national Israel. But basically it's the view that because of Christ in the church, ethnic national territory Israel is not significant anymore. And so what would be some of the, the arguments against that view? Again, the, the best case against a wrong view is a positive presentation of the right view. 
<laughs> and so you go back to where those passages we were talking about earlier uh, in, in, the, in the minor prophets and, and the major prophets that ethnic national territorial Israel is significant in God's purposes. And I like using Isaiah 49 because in Isaiah 49, you have the servant of Israel who is a specific individual who is said to save and restore Israel as a whole. So the servant of Israel, who we now know as Jesus in Isaiah 49, is actually, we're actually told he's going to restore Israel, the corporate entity, and bring them back to their land and bless the Gentiles. So in that passage, you actually see Jesus, national Israel, and then Gentiles all being uh, significant. So again, read Deuteronomy 30, and it predicts that Israel will be restored as a nation after a time of dispersion to the nations. You read the prophets, uh, Ezekiel 36 and 37 explicitly states the salvation and restoration of Israel. New Testament evidence, Matthew 23, 39, uh, Acts 1, 6, the significance of the tribes of Israel in, in Revelation chapter 7. Uh, there's all kinds of passages that talk about uh, the significance of Israel. And it's, it's just basic Bible interpretation principles, right? Like yeah. you read the prophets and when it says promises are made to Israel, right. we don't then redefine that word right. as the church. And we all acknowledge that curses came upon national Israel for disobedience. So we should take literally <laughs> yes. the promises of restoration after uh, the consequences for disobedience for Israel. So if we're going to be literal with Israel's curses, we need, to be is we need to be literal with Israel's blessings in the future. So a question along these lines then, it says in Ephesians 2.14, it says that Christ has made us Gentile believers one with Israel. In Ephesians 2.15, it says we're now one new man in place of the two. Uh, it says we're fellow citizens in 2.19. So it seems that there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. So how is there a distinction for Israel yeah. in the millennium? When it comes to salvation blessings, there is no distinction between Gentiles and Israel. But that doesn't mean they become the same thing. So it's like Galatians 3.28. When it comes to salvation of Christ, there's neither male nor female. But we understand there's functional and gender distinctions between male and female. I, I think one of the errors sometimes that is made is if Gentiles in salvation are put on equal footing with believing Israelites, we assume they're the same or that they, the Gentiles end up becoming Israel. But basically Ephesians 2, 11 through 3, 6 is talking about that you who formerly were far off the Gentiles have now been brought near because of what Christ has done at the cross. And there's several statements about fellow heirs, fellow members of the body. So believing Gentiles are not incorporated into Israel but they now have the same salvation blessings. But one of the things we have to understand though is having equal salvation blessings does not mean all distinctions go away. Like I said, it, you know, there's, I'm looking at this room, I'm seeing male and female, and there's probably different roles that are going on for the males and females in this room. And so salvation in Christ does not rule out any, you know, every kind of distinction that could exist. And the Bible talks about there's gonna be nations in the millennial kingdom, the eternal state. There's Israel, there's Egypt, there's other kinds of nations that are going on there. And there can be differences in function at times in God's purposes and at the same time, equality of salvation in Christ. So another question along these lines is that, uh, that was asked has to do with the throne of David. And so um, the differences of the views that are out there, it has to do, one of the differences is, has to do with what is the throne of David. And that's the question. Uh, it's a long question, but to summarize it, if Jesus is not currently on the throne of David, then how is the promise fulfilled if the throne of David is currently vacant when God said that he'll never lack a man on the throne? 
Well, first of all, you can have gaps. Like even in Old Testament history, there were captivities where you didn't have a king ruling on the throne of David. So the promise of the perpetuity or the eternal nature of the Davidic throne does not mean that it can never be uh, interrupted or, or uninterrupted. So, but, but, but basically the, the David's throne is, is, the, is the throne of the Davidic ruler in Jerusalem over Israel and eventually all nations. And so it is, it is an earthly throne. The right hand of God where Jesus is at now is not David's throne. Jesus tells you when he assumes David's throne in Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in glory with all of his angels, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Then all the nations are brought before him. If you read Matthew 19, 28 and 29, Jesus links his sitting on David's throne with the renewal of the cosmos, the regeneration and the 12 apostles judging the restored 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus tells us when he sits on David's throne to reign, Matthew 19, 28 to 29, and Matthew uh, 25, 31. So, it's, it's an earth, it, so we believe he's going to assume that throne at the time of the second coming. So Jesus now sitting at the right hand of the Father, that's not equivalent to the throne of David. No, Jesus is exalted as Messiah at the right hand of God, and he possesses all authority in heaven and earth. But he's at the right hand of God waiting from that time, which is what Hebrews 10, 12 to 13 states. He's at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies are defeated. So the Bible, so you can affirm two things. Jesus is exalted Messiah with the place of honor at the right hand of God. And, but there's going to come a time when God is going to stretch forth the Messiah's scepter rule from Zion, which is Jerusalem. So Psalm 110.1 is referring to Jesus' session at the right hand of God right now. Psalm 110.2 is talking about his kingdom reign upon the earth. And so, so the throne of David is the earthly throne, just like the other kings yeah. in the book of Kings and, and, right. and David and, and Samuel. It's an, it's an earthly throne right. over a national Israel. Correct. And I, and I think one verse that's actually pretty important in this is, uh, if I can get there quickly, if you look at Revelation 3, 20 to 21, Jesus actually distinguishes these, the two thrones. So in Revelation 3, 21, Jesus said, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. So notice my throne, that's the Davidic throne. As, and he makes a comparison, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So the, his throne is the universal throne of deity, the father that he had, God rules in his universal kingdom over the universe in heaven right now. Jesus is sharing that throne right now. But Jesus makes a distinction between the Father's throne and his throne. And Jesus says, when I come again, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, those who are believers, particularly in the, in the church, you're going you're to have the authority, I'm going to share my authority with you when I come again. So we, the questions that were asked uh, surrounding the second coming of Christ were these kind of deep, nerdy, Bible nerdy kind of questions. Yeah. Um, but if we pull back for a second, when it comes to the second coming of Christ, I typically only think about the destruction of his enemies. Mm -hmm. Like he's going to come destroy his enemies, Israel's enemies defeated, fulfilling all of those prophecies. But there are other aspects to the second coming that are significant. So there's so physically saving the people of Israel, fulfilling the covenants. And so as we, as we think through the second coming, what should, what, how, how should we think through that specific event? That, it's, that it has multiple phases. The second coming has multiple phases. I actually believe that just as the first coming of Christ 
involved a lot of events over several years. I think the same is true for the second coming of Christ. We often think of the second coming of Christ as the day he returns to earth. But actually, the seven-year day of the Lord, tribulation period, is also his coming. Like in Revelation 6, who's the one that opens up the first seal that leads to all the other seals, trumpets, and bulls, which leads to the second coming of Jesus to earth? Jesus is the one that does it. So I actually believe that the rapture of the church to, to not go through the day of the Lord and then the entire seven-year day of the Lord and the return of Christ to set up his kingdom is all connected with the second coming of Christ. So if Christ's first coming is more than one day, Christ's second coming is also more than one day. So it's going to involve resurrections, it involves judgments, it involves Israel, it involves the nations, it involves the church, it involves rewards. So it's very complex, not complicated, but complex in a good way. Yeah. Absolutely. And then then at the second coming, we see things like Jesus judging the world. We see him fulfilling the the Old Testament promises made. Yeah, fulfillment of the Old Testament, all, I, all the prophecy, even though there's an inauguration of a lot of the covenants and the promises in this age, the second coming with the kingdom that follow with, follows it brings the full fulfillment of everything in the Abrahamic, Davidic, and New Covenants and the prophecies concerning the kingdom. And at that time, Jesus reigns visibly as king over all the earth. Yeah, the view that we believe of Jesus' kingdom is very powerful. A lot of people say, well, Jesus is ruling his Davidic messianic millennial king today, but you don't have the nations that are acknowledging that. We believe that when Jesus comes again, as Zechariah 14 says, I think it's verse nine, in that day, his name will be the only one and there will be no other name. So our view of Jesus's kingdom is very powerful <laughs> because when he comes and rules upon the earth, there is, there is no other name. There are no false religions. There's no atheists. There's, there's none of that. And everybody knows <laughs> that Jesus is king and he transforms the earth. He wipes out disease. We know there's resurrection that takes place at that time. It's a righteous, just kingdom. Everything that was supposed to be what Adam was supposed to do and more. So that's well, how we view it. It's yeah. that kingdom that we are going to talk about in the next service. This is specifically about the millennium or some things that have to do with that. So to get us started, what, what is the millennium? Well, the millennium is coming from a Latin word, which means a thousand years. And so basically the millennium is referring to the thousand year reign of Christ that's discussed in Revelation chapter 20. So if you look at Revelation chapter 20, there's several references to a thousand years. And so that's really where we get that term at. So it's the millennium uh, is the Davidic reign of Jesus, the Messiah. Now there's going to be different views on when that occurs and then the nature of it. But basically, the millennium is the thousand-year reign of Christ, as discussed in Revelation 20. Although I would also want to add that there will be many passages in the Old Testament, the New Testament, that are related to the millennium, but specifically thousand years, that's referring to the reign in Revelation 20. So we got a lot of questions about animal sacrifices in the millennium. Yeah. And so uh, just for one of them, like this one right here, what is the purpose well, are there animal sacrifices in the millennium? And if so, um, what is the purpose since it never took away sin in the first place and it was a foreshadow to the ultimate sacrifice in Christ? Why would there be animal sacrifices when Christ had already been sacrificed once and for all? So are there animal sacrifices in the millennium? And if so, what, what's the purpose? Well, it seems like that's what Ezekiel 40 to 48 is discussing. It's describing a temple that's never existed in history. So it's describing in great detail, structural details of a temple. 
where there, most of it, most of it seems to be in regard to the cleansing of the temple of inanimate objects, but there's also discussion in regard to people as well. So I guess the question comes into mind is we, we, we acknowledge that their Christ is a perfect sacrifice for sins. And yet there's detail of these nine chapters in Ezekiel 40 to 48, talking about something that's never existed in history. This great grand temple that blows away any other kind of temple in history. So I guess the question comes, how, how do you harmonize that? So I do think there are, because the, the, the Bible teaches it. I think the short answer to that, to a complicated question, is it appears to be that there are national acts of worship that are taking place with that, what we call Ezekiel's temple. Um, there's very extremely few people that would be doing it. And it seems to be in regard, in regard to leaders within Israel, priests within Israel, and then representatives of other nations. So if we're looking for a, a short explanation, it would be an act of worship by certain representatives of nations, including Israel, during a time where Christ is reigning on the earth in Israel from Jerusalem, from David's throne. And there, there, it's, it's an act of worship that nations do. So in, in this age, we celebrate the Lord's Supper as we think of the cross. We know in the Old Testament, first of all, Hebrews 10 does tells us the blood of bulls and goats never did take away sin. So if they do occur, there's no trusting in those, in those animal sacrifices for forgiveness of sin. So the blood of bulls and goats never take, took away sin. We know that from Hebrews 10. So in the Old Testament, even the sacrifices of the Old Testament were pointing towards the cross of Christ. And then as we do the Lord's Supper in this age, we're remembering the cross of Christ. So it seems to be when Jesus is on David's throne reigning from Jerusalem that there's certain individuals from nations that do an act of worship. But I will want to say that if and when that occurs, nobody will be trusting in the efficacy of those particular animals. Um, the focus will be on Christ. So I do think it's an act of worship. So another question here on the millennium. I don't, I don't, actually this one's on the rapture. I don't know how I'm, I'm, I must have mismarked this one. Yeah. But this one says, uh, people are born after the rapture and into the next phases. While I very much agree with the preacher position, how do we know the rapture didn't already occur? So the main question is, how do we know the rapture hasn't already occurred? Yeah. Well, because in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, which is like the main rapture passage, it talks about that there, there's going to be a meeting uh, of Christ in the air between those who are in Christ, uh, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So that's like a, that's like a physical event. Christ comes in the clouds, the dead in Christ rise first, those who are alive remain, catch up in the air. I mean, the short answer is that hasn't happened yet. I mean, that's a very distinct physical resurrection event that we can't spiritualize in any way. So it's clearly future. I actually don't know the answer to this question. Uh, it, are, there, are there any views that say the rapture already took place? Yeah, I think you, I mean, they had it being very rare and on the fringe. Okay. But I mean, there, there are some people who think that we're in the eternal state now, even beyond the millennium. And therefore, you have to spiritualize anything concerning the rapture and the second coming of Christ. So, yeah, there are people who do it, but it's pretty rare. Another question here is, why do we take a thousand years literally, but not the 70 weeks of Daniel literally? We do take the 70 weeks of yeah. Daniel literally. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we do. Yes, we so, do. literally, the first 69 weeks brought you to Palm Sunday and we're leading to the Messiah being cut off. So, the first 69th weeks is literal. The, we believe the last 70th week, which is a seven-year period, which, by the way, is in Daniel 9, 27. We believe there's a future 70th week of Daniel, which is that last week. I guess the issue comes into play usually is we're saying there's a gap between the 69th week and then the 70th week. But I think that gap is taught literally, 
because it tells us once the 69th week is over in Daniel 9, that Messiah will be cut off and then it predicts the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And then with the last week, seven-year period, it talks about events concerning the Antichrist and his destruction and the abomination of desolation. So we are, to answer the question, we are taking Daniel 70 weeks literally. And in Revelation, when I look at the book of Revelation, the numbers seem to be literal. There's seven churches of Asia Minor. I'm not seeing any numbers in the book of Revelation that we can't be taking literal and a 1,000-year reign of the Messiah seems to make sense. So the word weak is not, is a, is a known way in the Bible shorthand for seven for se- It's literally, yeah, 70. But the word for week is literally sevens. So when it talks about, and like in Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks have been determined for your people, Israel, for, you know, for the city, Jerusalem, that it's 70 sevens is literally 490. And in the context of Daniel 9, particularly stemming from verses one to two, where the, the, the 70 year Babylonian captivity is being discussed, um, the 70 sevens refers to years. So we're dealing with 493, I'm, we're we're dealing with 490 years altogether the first 483 culminated in Christ's coming and crucifixion and we believe the last seven years is a tribulation period a day of the Lord we call it Daniel's 70th week yeah we we dug in more on that on this passage Daniel 9 24 to 27 and the tribulation period yesterday in the second service and so we're posting them online and you'll see in parentheses one two three or four those are the services so yesterday, second service, we talked more about this. Now, um, I have to blame this one on Kyle because the question is, Pastor Kyle indicated that Israel was going to be offering sacrifices again. It seems quite clear, though, from Hebrews 8 that the sacrifices are obsolete and the priesthood had ended. So it's a, it's a, we're digging into that idea of the, uh, of the um, sacrifices in the millennium in light of Hebrews chapter 8. Yeah. So the thing is, we have to harmonize two things. No doubt, Hebrews and the New Testament is telling us Christ gave the ultimate sacrifice for sins. Nobody can trust in anything other than that. So Christ is the ultimate sacrifice for sins. And yet we do have nine chapters of a prophetic book that is God's word. It's also the word of Christ telling us the details of a specific temple we've never seen before in history. So we somehow have to harmonize those truths. And like I said, I think the best thing to do is to see that uh, as an act of worship by nations during a time where Christ is ruling the nations from Jerusalem. Again, the blood of bulls and goats never did take away sin. So even Old Testament times, it didn't take away sin. So if they occur in that particular period, um, it's done in light of the cross of Christ, not instead of nobody's trusting in the efficacy of those animal sacrifices. It's, I, I want to dig into that a little bit because there, there is a sense in some of the positions uh, when it comes to end times that and it's not just end times, it's many different views that, that we pick verses against other verses. Yeah. So that it's, it's almost like we're, we're trying to show there's a contradiction where yeah. what you said should be critical. for harmonization. Exactly. That's, can, you, <laughs> can you talk about that more? Yeah. I mean, the thing is all scripture harmonizes. Absolutely. And so, I mean, there are some people to say, I don't believe those chapters are going to be fulfilled literally because you know, of what's happened in the New Testament. I think the better way to look at it is there a way to harmonize those. And so... Um, I, I think that's a better solution to look for that harmonization than to say what Scripture is actually predicting in detail is not going to come true, particularly when what's described in Ezekiel 40 to 48 is part of a new covenant section in Ezekiel. <laughs> like everything stemming from Ezekiel 34 onward through the end, chapter 48, is dealing with a new covenant context. And so, and I think one of the things we have to remember too is that 
when you think of the setting for Ezekiel 40 to 48, Ezekiel 36 and 37 talks about the salvation and restoration of Israel to the land and the Davidic king ruling from Jerusalem. So you have this situation where Jesus is on earth. He's in Israel. He's in Jerusalem. The nations are supposed to pay tribute to that, according to like Zechariah 14. When you, when you put it in that situation, say, this perhaps could be an act of worship in light of the cross. Um, I, think, I think that's better than just saying, here's, here's nine chapters that won't be fulfilled. We just say it's not going to happen. And by the way, the other, the other views have their own problems as well. Like I said, you know, here you have a new covenant prophetic passage talking about things are going to happen is the best solution really to say, no, it's not going to happen. I mean, I'm not comfortable doing that. So to come back to your original question, I, 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 think they, I think they can be harmonized, and I think that's the best approach to go with. So much of the millennium, this thousand-year reign of Christ, has to do with the fulfillment of Old Testament promises yes. to national Israel. Um, we, we, we talked about this question in the last service, but I want to come back to it because it kind of sets the table for why we're saying the things that we are about the millennium. Yeah. So can you... Um, do you know anything about replacement theology? A little bit. Uh, a little bit. You wrote your doctoral <laughs> dissertation on that. Yeah. You wrote a book on that, yeah. which we have in our bookstore. Um, so can you talk about replacement theology and why it is that, that you're emphasizing national Israel or like right. just now, Jesus in a specific city on the planet Jerusalem, yeah. ruling over a specific people, the Jewish people, as well as the whole world. Why, why, why are we saying that versus a replacement theology view. I guess the reason why, I mean, replacement theology is the view that because of Jesus and the church, allegedly Israel, who's an ethnic national territorial entity is no longer significant in God's purposes. So you have all these promises to national Israel in the Old Testament, and some are saying those are not going to be fulfilled literally with Israel in the land. There's no restoration of the national entity because of Jesus and the church. So the, the way to spot replacement theology, which is sometimes called fulfillment theology, sometimes it's called supersessionism, sometimes it's called expansion theology. The way, the way to, to know if it's, if it's occurring is if you ask somebody, do you believe, like Israel is an, as an ethnic national entity is significant in the Old Testament. Do you believe that group that went, underwent curses for, for disobedience is going to experience the, the physical land, spiritual blessings to the nation? Like the same nation that got the curses, is that going to get the blessings? If the answer to that is no, then you're dealing with a replacement theology position. Now, again, the best argument against a wrong view is a positive presentation of the right view. And so if you look at the first 10 verses of Deuteronomy 30, it predicts that Israel was going to go into the land, be blessed for a while because they were obeying God, but then they're going to start to disobey God. And then they were going to be dispersed to the nations and then later brought back, saved spiritually, and restored with the land and physical blessings. It's a big picture passage. If you read Leviticus 26, you'll see the same thing. Uh, Verses 40 to 45 predicts that when Israel's in dispersion, if they repent, God will bring them back into the land and bless them. If you read all the minor prophets and the major prophets, in Jeremiah 30 to 33, Ezekiel 36 to 48, all these passages talk about a restoration of Israel. The New Testament comes along and reaffirms the restoration of Israel. Acts 1.6, Lord, is at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says it's not for you to know the timing. Implied, yes, it is going to occur. You read the significance of the 12 tribes of Israel in Revelation 7. You read about the coming salvation of Israel in Romans 11.26, Matthew 23.39. So, so the, the key thing is, is the Bible teaches that Israel is a significant part of the Bible storyline. It's not the only part of the Bible storyline. And we can say Christ himself is the most important part 
of the Bible storyline. But both, but I'm using these synonymously, Christ and God have deemed in their sovereignty that Israel is a significant part of the Bible storyline. Genesis 12, two to three says, for Abraham, I'm gonna make a great nation out of you, which is Israel, and in you, all the families of the earth are gonna be blessed. And that's gonna include the Messiah who comes from Israel. So one of the main reasons we wanna reject replacement theology is it's contrary to the Bible storyline. Paul calls it arrogant in Romans 11, 18. He says, don't be arrogant towards the branches. He's referring to Israel at that particular point. So we wanna reject replacement theology because it's not true to the Bible storyline. Um, when it comes to Israel, we don't want to underemphasize or overemphasize its significance, but we want to give it the significance Scripture gives to it. So the best view is to see, in addition to what God is doing for the nations in general and what he's doing in the church in this age, that national Israel is significant in God's purposes, and we embrace that in a way that Scripture presents. And just to tease this for you, um, next year in May those of you going to Israel are going to stand in these places and you're going to see them with your own eyes. And for the hundred of you that got on the waiting list, we have another trip coming in November of next year that you can sign up for. And so just, if you've just felt like, Oh, I really, I would love to have done that. November is also a trip that's coming up. So, um, now another question has to do with what people who were raptured or people who died during the church age and came okay. back at the second coming, right. what are they going to be doing? So the question is, you said at the end of the service, we will all be wearing crowns and reigning during the millennium. Are there any verses for that? Yeah, Revelation 2, 26 to 27. Yeah. Take a quick look at that right here. You know, Revelation 2 to 3, you're, you're getting the messages uh, to, the, uh, to the seven churches. So if you look in... Uh, Revelation 2, 26 to 27, Jesus refers to Psalm 2, and I think it's actually Psalm, Psalm 2, 9. So Psalm 2, 9 is actually predicting the Messiah's coming reign over the nations. And Jesus tells the church in verse, so Revelation 2, verses 26 to 27, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also received authority from my father. So Jesus is going to share his authoritative kingdom rule over the nations at his second coming with those that are members of the church. And then if you look at Revelation 3.21, Revelation 3.21, Jesus says, he who overcomes, and this is a message to the church, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. That's the Davidic throne that Jesus assumes at the second coming as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So Jesus is priming the church positions of authority in that kingdom. Uh, Revelation 5.10 says that those whom Christ has made to be a kingdom positionally, they will reign upon the earth. And so one of the things that we have to understand is that when Jesus comes again, it's not for a hand-holding ceremony in the clouds in the sky forever. He's actually coming to the earth. <laughs> He's coming to fulfill the Adamic mandate for a successful rule from and over the earth. He's going to rule the earth and subdue it successfully. And the scripture promises that he shares that reign with, with those who are in him. If you read Luke 19, 11 and following, it, there's Jesus likens himself to a nobleman who goes away to a distant country, heaven, but then he comes back to reign and he rewards his servants with positions over cities and that sorts of thing. So what, what's, what's going to happen is for those who are members of the church now, how you act now affects your position in the coming millennial kingdom. And I don't know how that's all going to work out. 
I do think there will be people that are in actual governmental positions because there are literal nations, there's literal cities, those sorts of things. But there's also going to be cultural issues and social things. And I'm sure there's going to be farmers and architects and all those sorts of things. But you you are ruling <laughs> um, in that it's, it's like I said, it's not just a uh, you're not sitting on a cloud with the halo. You're participating in an earthly kingdom reign of the Messiah on earth, which is a just and righteous kingdom. We'll talk about that a little more in the next service, but that is a critical distinction. The the new creation model versus the spiritual vision model, the idea that that heaven and, and eternity is just going to be us floating and floating around on clouds yeah. and singing and all of those things versus what what you see in the scriptures when you read prophetic passages literally, which is that we're gonna we're gonna be doing work exactly for all of eternity. We're gonna be learning, we're gonna be interacting. There's right. we're gonna be in physical bodies for all of eternity. Right. Everybody is either resurrected unto life or resurrected unto death. Exactly right. Yeah, I mean throughout your, I mean there's been uh, we often call this the spiritual vision model. If you were to, don't do this now, but if you were to go on the internet and type in the word heaven on a search engine, you'll get all the somebody sitting on a cloud with the halo. There was a far side cartoon decades back where it showed a guy on a cloud with the halo saying, I wish I'd have brought a magazine. A lot of people think that that's what eternity's like. They think heaven's going to be boring. I mean, but the Bible presents man's destiny as being on the earth. Like in the millennium and the eternal state, it is this earth restored. And that involves real activity. So we have to get this idea out of our head that we just go to a timeless, space, spaceless existence when it actually we're resurrected bodies. Isaiah 65 says it on the new earth that there's, there are people are living in houses they're planting vineyards and those kinds of real activity. There's people who are being born and who are dying during the millennium. Yeah, during the well, millennium. We'll, yeah. we'll get to some of that in a minute. Uh, this one says, um, how can people be in glorified bodies on the earth when there is still sin during the millennium? Yeah, so the, we do believe that there, there are resurrected saints that come back with Christ during glorified bodies. The church will be resurrected in the millennium. But the people that go through the sheep go judgment in Matthew 25, 31, the believers, the sheep will be in non-glorified bodies, even though they're believers. So, I, I, so in other words, what we are saying is there ends up being an era where it does, on earth, there's a combination of glorified and non-glorified. And by the way, you did have that with Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection. When Christ came out of the grave, he was talking to people that weren't glorified and people that were sinners. <laughs> so that, can, that actually... Uh, that actually can occur. So I think what we're dealing with is like, the if you think about things in progression, like we're in this present age right now, death, non, we're not glorified. And then if you jump ahead to the perfect eternal kingdom, everybody's glorified. The millennium comes in between that, and it is a mix between glorified and non-glorified. Now, I do think the millennium is more like the eternal state than this present age, but it does make sense if we have this age where we have non-glorified, the eternal state, there's all glorified. To have, a, have a, 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 an intermediate kingdom where there's a mix of both, I think, makes sense. Uh, this question is, you said that when someone dies at 100 during the millennium, I think this is person is talking about Kyle again. 65. You said that when someone dies at 100 during the millennium, it will be rare as a child dying now. My question, when will those who die during the millennium be resurrected? I guess the key would be whether you're dealing with believer. Or yeah. 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 So Isaiah 65, it's 17, Isaiah 65, 17 talks about new heavens, new earth. And then it says, if anyone dies at the age of 100, they'll be thought accursed. That's clearly not true of this age. And so I, I think what you're get, what you're getting there is uh, that person that would die at the age of 100, that you, that you would think they're accursed. That probably would be somebody who died because they did something wicked in the millennial kingdom. So if somebody dies at the age of 100, they'll be thought accursed. 
So I, I would take it that that person probably would be resurrected. You know, the Revelation does talk about that after the thousand years, there's another coming to life, another resurrection. Uh, it involves uh, unbelievers. So I would, I would say in the case of an unbeliever, they, they would, their body would die. They probably would be in Hades. And then at the time of the second resurrection, that's where the lake of fire would come into play for them. When it comes to believers, I mean, we are told that there won't be anyone who doesn't live out his days. We're not told that any like non-glorified believer would die in the millennium. So it's hard to say, oh yeah, I know there's, I guess you get into scenarios. What if somebody's really, really old and they survived that they got saved in the tribulation and they made it to the second coming? Could they possibly? We, it just doesn't say. I guess your options would be is if you had a non-glorified yeah. believer who died and we don't, we're not even granting that's the case. I don't know whether they'd be resurrected right away or that or resurrected after the thousand years. The idea is that in the millennium, the physical uh, conditions on the earth have changed. Yeah. Right? Right. And we would want to make clear nobody in a glorified body is dying. Yeah. So in other words, like for those that are part of the raptured church or those the tribulation martyrs that come to life, according to Revelation 24, they gave their lives for Christ. They come to life. Nobody, nobody is dying who has a glorified body. And so, but there'll be the absence of sickness and deformity, Isaiah 33 and 35 and yeah. 61, Ezekiel 34. Yeah. Um, resulting in long lifespans. Right. So one of the things the Messiah does, remember, we're like a new creation model perspective. The Messiah not only saves people spiritually, but he also restores the earth. So Romans 8, 19 to 22 talks about that. Isaiah 35 talks about that. So when Jesus comes again, he is bringing healing to all of creation. He's wiping out disease. He's restoring the animal kingdom. A lot of people want to talk about it. They're going to be animals in heaven. Well, I know one thing, there's going to be animals in the millennial kingdom and probably the eternal state. <laughs> if you read Isaiah 11, 6 to 9, it's talking about a restoration of the animals. It talks about a child could play by a cobra and it wouldn't, there's no harm that would come. It talks about animal, animal harmony, animal, human harmony. So basically every area of creation that has been marred by the fall, Jesus fixes, he fixes it permanently in the millennial kingdom. So we do have to understand that Jesus's kingdom involves salvation of you spiritually, but it also involves resurrection and it involves transformation of the earth, the animal kingdom, um, agriculture works well, disease is wiped out. It's a very extensive reign of the Messiah. So what Jesus did in his first coming, these, these breakouts of, of healing right. power, um, that's just a foretaste Snaps of that happening all millennium. over the world. Right. If I cast out demons by the spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So think about this. Jesus's miracles were acts of compassion, no doubt about it. But they were also snapshots of what he's going to do permanently in the millennium. So when he would cast demons out of people, what's that a snapshot of? Satan's permanently bound from the earth, <laughs> according to Revelation chapter 20. Whenever Jesus would heal somebody, that was a snapshot of the, of the permanent healing that Isaiah 35 talks about. Again, remember in, in, in New Testament, when Jesus healed people, they would still die. And so what he was doing there was not the permanent establishment of the kingdom of God at that particular time, but they were snapshots of the millennium. So all, and even Jesus's mastery over nature, when it came to animals or calming storms, that's a snapshot of nature in the animal kingdom working perfectly in the millennium. So I like to think of Jesus's miracles, not only as acts of compassion, but he's giving people a snapshot of what the millennium will be on a permanent global level. I, I don't know about you. I just learned something just now from that. That, that was, that was amazing. Um, th this is a question that I asked earlier. Um, but for the sake of clarity, when the saints come back to reign with Jesus in the millennial kingdom, do they have resurrection bodies? 
Are they living here on earth side by side with people who survived the tribulation? Yeah, they do have resurrected bodies. So again, remember the purpose of the pre-tribulational rapture said the church will be evacuated from the wrath of God during the day of the Lord. So when, when 1 Thessalonians 4 takes place, we, dead in Christ will rise first. We are alive and remain. We'll be caught up together with them. I think that's when the church gets the, the, the resurrected bodies. In Revelation 19, at the second coming of Christ, it talks about armies dressed in white that are coming with him to reign on the earth. And so I think that's the returning church at that particular time. When Revelation 20 verse 4, the first part of the verse says, I saw thrones and they sat on them. I think that's the returning church of, of Revelation 19. Now he will say after that in the next part of verse 4, and then I saw the martyrs, those who gave their lives for Christ, they came to life and they reigned as well. So we, we, I, I believe that when it comes to the millennial kingdom, the church is glorified during that period. People who died for Christ in the tribulation period will be glorified. But I do think the believers who go through the sheep goat judgment of Matthew 25, 31 to 46, I think those will be people in the kingdom with non-glorified bodies. And that, you know, because Isaiah 65 talks about they will not bear children for calamity. So you have millennial passages that talk about childbirth. And what's interesting about that is we, we, one of the things about the millennium too is that when childbirth does occur with non-glorified saints, there's no, it says they won't bear children for calamity. So there's no abortions. There's no stillborn death. There's nothing negative. That'll be the first time in history that you actually have procreation where there's nothing negative that happens to children or anything at that particular time. But to answer the last part of the question is, yes, there, there are people, that, like I said, it, it, there are people in non-glorified, there's glorified and non-glorified, which fits well with an era that's different from this present age and then different from the eternal state. So we'll be like the Avengers with the rest of the world like we are now. I guess that's one way to yeah. look at it. It does yeah. seem to be that the emphasis on the ruling of the nations is with people that are glorified. Like, I'm not 100% dogmatic on that, but it does seem like resurrected church and, tribu and tribulation saints. And we do believe Old Testament saints are resurrected too at the time of the second. It seems like those that are resurrected might have more of an official ruling function than others. So this question is, John 18 says that my, Jesus is my kingdom is not of this world. How do you reconcile that with the earthly millennial kingdom? Yeah. Well, there's tons of passages that talk about an earthly kingdom. <laughs> and that was, that was the, the mandate given to, to Adam in Genesis chapter 1. So when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, when he's before Pilate, he, he uses a Greek preposition, ek, it means source. He's saying, the source of my kingdom is not of this world. And he said, you know, it, and he'll say, even if it was, my servants here would be fighting for me. So a statement that the source of Jesus's kingdom is not of this world is not a statement that he won't rule in an earthly kingdom. So the Bible describes the kingdom as the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom that comes from heaven. So when you read Matthew 25, 31, Jesus comes from heaven with his angels to rule upon the earth. I think basically what Jesus is telling Pilate at, this, at that time is a very specific point is that he is not offering a challenge at this time. His, his mission at this time is the cross. It's not a statement that his kingdom has nothing to do with the earth. It's a statement that the source of what he's doing is not from the earth. Very helpful. Um, so this is another clarifying question. We've, you've answered this question, but this will just allow, allow what you've been saying to be clear if people haven't been clear on it yet. So this question is, who will be on earth during the millennium? Oh, so the people that would be on earth during the millennium would be the returning resurrected church. They would be there. Um, Old Testament saints, according to Daniel 12, 1 to 2, after the tribulation, Old Testament saints from past eras are resurrected. They're going to be on the earth. 
Revelation 20 verse 4, martyred tribulation saints will be on the earth. And then the believing non-glorified survivors of the sheep goat judgment of Matthew 25 will be there. Now, because there is procreation, there are going to be people that are born that need to come to faith. So, so you're, so basically, but that would be the group, uh, the resurrected church, Old Testament saints, um, resurrected martyrs, and then the sheep of the, of the, of the sheep goat judgment entering the kingdom. And then the population that unfolds after that. And obviously Christ. Yeah, he would be on earth. Yeah, Christ is ruling. Yeah, from David's throne from Jerusalem. We're told in Matthew nineteen twenty eight to twenty nine that the twelve apostles will be judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and then Jesus also says that in Luke twenty two at the at the Lord's Supper. So the apostles will also have a specific role of ruling Israel during that time. So this question is: uh, Believers who have died and are with the Lord are free from our world of sin, sickness, and death. We look forward to that and how wonderful it will be. Wouldn't it then be almost like punishment to come back here for the millennial kingdom? The reason it's, the reason it's not is because heaven's not man's destiny. It, it, the heavens are made for the Lord, but the earth he's given to the sons of men. I think that's Psalm 115, but I, I, I may be about to see it, but it's, it's in one of the Psalms. So think about it. When God created Adam, he created him what? To be on the earth and to rule and subdue the earth from the earth. So Adam's destiny was to be on the earth, ruling from the earth. Man's destiny was not, okay, Adam, I made you now get up to heaven because this is where you're supposed to be. So I think when you understand from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 that man's destiny is the earth and that's where God wants man to reign, we understand that the intermediate heaven, which we do acknowledge is wonderful. Paul said to be with Christ is even better. But Paul also said he doesn't want to be found naked, which refers to a non-being in heaven without a, not, without a glorified body. So... So the, the thing, and I also think it's interesting in Revelation 6, 9 to 11, you actually have people that were killed on earth who appear in heaven. So there's literally people there, their life on earth has ended for a while and they're in heaven. And you want to know what they say? How long will Lord holy and true until you avenge our blood upon the earth? In other words, they're thinking of the earth. They want Christ to reign upon the earth. In Revelation 4 and 5, which is probably the most glorious heavenly scene there is in scripture. In Revelation 5, 9, there's a song to Jesus they say, you've purchased with your blood people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom. They will reign on the earth. So it's interesting in the book of Revelation, the heavenly scenes are anticipating an earthly reign. And I know this is for the next session, but when you get to the final, final eternal state, you have the whole Trinity living on the earth and living in the new Jerusalem. So even in the end, God fully is living on the earth. So I know you answered this question too, but just for clarification's sake, what happens to people who come to faith during the millennium and then die? I don't know if there would be any. So in other words, like I would, I would probably just guess that I don't think there would be a situation where people come to faith in the millennium and then die. Like the only scenario where I thought maybe an, a non-glorified believer might die, maybe, <laughs> is if they were really, really old as the millennium begins, but I'm not even so sure. I mean, you have the wiping out of disease. <laughs> I mean, everything works perfectly at that particular time. So I guess I would just say to answer it, I, I don't think there are people that die who come to faith. So the last question here is, uh, can you define and provide some background info on amillennialism? Where did it come from? Seems that they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and then, uh, yeah. Yeah, that it says it doesn't jive with the plain reading of revelation. Yeah. yeah. So all millennials are brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. 
and uh, we 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 fellowship and 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 enjoyed the discussion. Um, obviously, I believe the Bible teaches premillennialism, <laughs> which is that the millennium comes with the second coming of Christ to earth, and He reigns on earth for a thousand years. Premillennialism, the view that Christ is going to rule on the earth from Jerusalem, a literal earthly kingdom with physical blessings, was taught heavily, either unanimous or heavy consensus of the church of the first 200 years or so. It does seem like to be when you get into the later 200s and then the latter part of the 300s, because of allegorical interpretation, there started to be a shift towards, no, Christ's kingdom's not material. That doesn't seem right. It must be a spiritual kingdom. So, Pre, so technically, amillennialism, there's a guy named Tychonius who's right before Augustine, but the famous church father, Augustine, who's, who's in the later 300s and early 400s, he's, he's often called the father of amillennialism. So I think amillennialism starts pretty much hundreds of years after the New Testament was written. I think it was, uh, I, I call it, I think it develops from spiritual vision model soil, too heavily involved with allegorical interpretation, emphasizing the spiritual over the material. So basically what you get with amillennialism is the belief that Jesus's millennium is in this age between the first and second comings of Christ. And therefore his reign is primarily a spiritual reign. It's primarily salvation, you know, uh, your salvation, your justification. We're not putting those things down, by the way. (laughs) We're just saying they're making it just that. They're making it, you know, the church salvifically. So basically it becomes salvation in this age. Or some might even say it's the reign of the saints who are in heaven spiritually right now. The problem, the, the main, the main reason why I come not on millennials is because the case for premillennialism is so strong. Like the Bible teaches an Adamic mandate from Genesis one that man is supposed to rule and subdue the earth successfully for the glory of God. Adam fails; we've all failed since that. Jesus will succeed in that. So if you read Matthew nineteen twenty eight to thir- to twenty nine, that kingdom is an earthly kingdom. Revelation five ten says the saints are looking to reign upon the earth. There's all kinds of discussion of of the earth at the time of Christ's second coming. <laughs> so. Basically, the reason to reject amillennialism is the case for premillennialism is so strong. And I would also say amillennialism does not fit the Bible storyline because the reign of the Messiah is supposed to be a successful reign from and over the earth that, it, that transforms all of creation. With amillennialism, you get a spiritual reign from heaven because they would say, well, Jesus is reigning from a spiritual Davidic throne in heaven, and then it affects things spiritually. It's just not a strong enough kingdom. That uh, we, we acknowledge the great significance of spiritual salvation, but Messiah's kingdom is so much more. If you believe in the premillennial view, this is a strong dominating kingdom with rule with the rod of iron that transforms everything, all of creation, the animal kingdom, everything, the earth is transformed in all of its ways. So the reason, I, I would say the reason to be premillennial, not amillennial, is the case for premillennialism is so strong. And amillennialism does not fit the Bible storyline. Of, of man's destiny is to rule from and over the earth, which Jesus fulfills in the millennium. And that kingdom is not something that we bring in through our obedience and our culture changing. That that kingdom is something that is brought in for us yeah. by the king. Yeah, I like to, although there's some who think that we can have an earthly kingdom before Christ comes again. The, the truth of it is we need, uh, to use a military analogy, we need boots on the ground. Like Jesus needs boots on the ground. Like this world is so deeply evil structurally. And the saints of this age are viewed as being persecuted by Satan in the world. It's when Jesus comes again, that's when you're going to have the radical overthrow of all the evil structures in the world replaced with the righteous kingdom, including the reign of the saints. Last question, really the last question. So what happens at the end, (laughs) quickly, what happens at the end of the millennium? 
So at the end of, at the end of the millennium, um, Satan is released from the abyss. So uh, during during the millennium, he has no access to it. He's released from the abyss. Those that did not come to faith during the millennium will join him against Christ. So remember, there's people born in the millennium, and they have to come to faith. Those that don't will join. I, I think Satan being released from the abyss to make an attack upon the earth draws out the unbelievers at that particular time. But their judgment is instantly met with fire. It, it, it's linked with the Gog, Magog, Ezekiel 38 and 39 section. 38 and 39 section there. So there, there's immediate destruction of Satan and the sending to the lake of fire at that particular point. But then what happens after that, there's, you know, there's a great white throne judgment where I think uh, Revelation 20, 11 to 15, where there's a judgment of all believers of all times. So the sea gives up its dead. Those that are in Hades now appear um, before uh, the great white throne judgment. And I, I, I think that's where you have all unbelievers sent to the lake of fire at that point. And then, which will lead to our next section, you have the eternal state, which is discussed in Revelation 21 and 22. And so we've got a, a bunch of questions left today, and I want to start with this one. This kind of goes back, th- this is a, a general question, and it is, what will happen to those who have already passed away, who weren't aware of Jesus, never heard about him at the time of the rapture? Okay, so say it one more time. So about people who've never heard of the gospel. The yeah, time. what will happen to those who have already passed? Okay, already who weren't aware of Jesus okay. and never heard about him at the time of the rapture? I don't think that the rapture event would affect that group of yeah, people definitely. because uh, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, with that uh, rapture snatching away event, verses 13 to 18, uh, it's the uh, the dead in, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, which would be believers at that time living, We'll be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. So um, I, First Thessalonians 4 rapture event is, is just for uh, believers specifically in Christ, both those that have, have died in Christ and those who are alive at the time of the rapture. So it wouldn't affect people that would have, would have died before that wouldn't be affected by that event. And now um, another question here. So this is Second Peter chapter 3. So if you want to open your Bibles, Second Peter chapter 3 verse 7. It says here, can you explain how 2 Peter 3, 7... So these are all your questions, by the way. So uh, someone asked this. Um, can you explain how 2 Peter 3, 7 and verses 10 to 13, which talk about the destruction of the heavens and the earth, how does that fit into the end times uh, scenario that you've been talking about? Yeah, so 2 Peter 3, day of the Lord, new heavens, new earth... Uh, yeah, so there's a lot going on here. Uh, and this is one of these passages where you get people that oftentimes may be very closely related, may have some differences of opinion on some things here. So basically what you're having here is that uh, you have mockers who are mocking the idea of Christ's return. So we're told in verse 3, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lust, saying, where is the promise of his coming? So basically there are people mocking the second coming of Christ. And what will happen in this passage is... Peter will remind them that God's judgment is going to be coming with a day of the Lord judgment. And one of the reasons people should know the day of the Lord with fire is coming is because God's already destroyed the world with water at the time of Noah's flood before. So there, there's, there's a, there's a, God has globally judged the world before at Noah's time. and He's going to judge it again. So mockers better be careful with their mocking of his coming because they may think every day is just the same and tomorrow will be like today. 
But that's what they were thinking in Noah's time too. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, so the Bible does present not only in this passage, but there's going to be, there is a day of the Lord that comes like a, a thief in the night. And so um, when you look at verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with the roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. A lot of translations have burned up. Some think the better, the better understanding of the term should be discovered or found. And we can talk about that. Um, and then since all these things are to be destroyed in such a way, what sort of people ought you to be in holiness and conduct looking for the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens, new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this is teaching a coming day, a day of the Lord. Um, there's going to be different views on this. I mean, my personal thought on this is that the day of the Lord is usually pictured in connection with this, with the tribulation period, 70th week of Daniel, and, the, and then leading up to the second coming of Christ. So I do think that's what this is referring to. So I think this fiery destruction, this day of the Lord is in connection with the tribulation period and the second coming of Christ. There's obviously a, a fiery destruction that is involved with this particular time, and it involves the earth. So one of the areas where you're going to get some di disagreement here is like when this occurs, does this like, is this fiery destruction, which is very intense, does it knock this planet earth out of existence and therefore God's going to start over with a new one? Or is this present earth purged more like uh, metals through a fire? You know, so sometimes metals will be purged by fire to come out better. So there's really a lot of, uh, like I said, good people can disagree on this issue some people even think this burning up of the heavens of the earth could be after the end of the millennium, which is way after uh, the tribulation, second coming, and then after the millennial kingdom. So uh, I guess the, where, where I would fall on this is I, I, I do think like most day of the Lord passages, it involves the tribulation and the second coming of Christ. I do think at the end of verse 10, when it talks about the earth and its works will be burned up, I do think the better manuscripts of, of which... Uh, probably the, what, what was used in the original was more of what was called discovered or found. So not an annihilation. So I, I don't, even though there are a lot of good people who hold to it, I don't believe in an annihilation of planet earth. I believe, I believe in a restoration of planet earth. And I think that's discussed in passages like Romans 8, 19 to 22 and other passages that talk about the earth being restored. So to put it all together, <laughs> I, I think that this, um, um, the judgment of mockers and the wicked and the fiery destruction that is used here occurs in connection, particularly at the end of the tribulation period, second coming of Christ, and that the earth is purged as one goes into the, into the millennial kingdom of Christ. Uh, the tribulation, if you read <laughs> the, the seal's trumpet bull judgment, there's a lot of destruction going on in the earth. The earth, earth is, is wrecked in certain ways. So I think this will be part of that purging you should know that there are, I mean, there are good people that hold that this takes place after the end of the millennium. So there's good, good discussion on that, but that would be my view. All right. And then somebody asked this question. You just mentioned Romans 8, which says Romans 8, 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And the question is, does this indicate that the curse is removed at the same time as our physical resurrection? Yeah. So I do think there's, we, we do know in the eternal state that we're told the curse is removed. The eternal state is even after the millennium. But we're also told in Zechariah 14 in regard to the millennium that there's a curse removal as well, particularly involving Jerusalem. So I actually even think the removal of the curse has two phases, phases to it. So I think when you're looking at the, that Romans passage that you just quoted, that the, 
the the 19 which you have in Romans 8 19 to 22 is Paul is stating that creation and he's talking about in general cre- creation including what we normally think of the inanimate creation the rocks the trees all of that sort of stuff he actually pictures creation as longing for the resurrection of believers and the redemption of the body because when that happens creation is going to be restored as well so there's a very strong connection between believers being resurrected and creation being restored and, and i actually think this is one of the evidences too that why this earth is not knocked out of existence because in this particular text it says creation is actually hoping for this to occur so it seems like it seems like the earth and creation's expectation and hope is for restoration not annihilation and um so we also have this question and so it you, you've answered it but it's just another way to answer the same thing that you've just talked about so the question goes like this will the earth be completely destroyed and a new earth created or will the new earth be rebuilt from the old yeah so my personal view would be this earth is restored so i, I think in the millennial kingdom it's this earth I also think in the after the millennium with what's described in Revelation 21 and 22, what we call the eternal state, eternal kingdom, I think it's also going to be this earth restored. So, um, and, and, and again, a large part of it is because of that, that Romans 8 passage that the, it seems like the fate of, of planet earth and creation follows the fate of man, that the two are tied together. So remember back before the fall, man's doing well, creation's doing well. What happens when the fall occurred and sin occurred? There's a curse upon the ground. And then scripture presents, like in the Romans 8 passage, that the creation is longing to be restored. And what happens according to Romans 8, when there's resurrection of the body for believers in the church, creation gets restored. So it seems to me there's that parallel. So I, 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 don't, think, I don't think the situation is we as human beings get resurrected and restored, but then the planet has to be destroyed. So I, 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 would, I would hold to the restoration view. Now, again, this is one of these areas where and I don't, I don't like to always just say, okay, here's this view and then here's another view. But this truly is one of these areas where people that agree on a lot of details about future prophetic events, there's a lot of good people who do think that God's going to knock this planet out of existence and start over with an entirely new one. And those people who do hold that, they do hold to a tangible planet. They do believe it's, it's, it's entirely out of nothing creation like at the beginning. Um, I don't think that's the case when I read Revelation 21 and 22. I'm not, I'm not seeing a similar a situation where God's creating it out of nothing. I think there, I, I think it is a restoration. So to answer the question, um, I think in the millennium and the eternal state, it is this earth purged and restored. And I like to, the, not, not just me saying this, but it seems to me that that fits with the, uh, with the, the biblical theme that Satan doesn't get victory over anything over God. <laughs> so, um, so in other words, even God, even when it comes to this planet and the creatures and that sort of stuff, God, God wins. God never gives up on his creation. We talked about that in the last service too, that, that there are physical conditions that happen during the thousand year reign of Christ that are very different than right now, that, that point to a much more healthy environment, people living longer, right. um, uh, disease eradicated, deformity eradicated. That right. There's a real sense of Eden is being restored yes. to the planet. Yeah. I mean, that is a I mean, I, I believe that what Christ rules is it, it's not just exactly the same as Eden before the fall, but there is, there is a close connection to Edenic conditions and even better. And again, we, we have to understand the beginning of the story and the, by the end of the story, I mean, what you find in the later passages of scripture. Remember in Genesis 1, what's man's original mandate? To rule 
and subdue the earth and its creatures for the glory of God. And so that, that involves not just dealing with other people and being in a right relationship with God. It involves the ground, involves earth, earth's creatures. So I do believe that when you, when you get to Christ's millennial kingdom, Christ fulfills the, the mandate given to Adam and mankind to rule and subdue the earth successfully. That hasn't been accomplished in history yet, but Christ will do that. So when that does occur, there will be not only salvation of people and spiritual forgiveness of sins on a massive scale, but you're also going to have the animal. The animal kingdom is going to work right. Agriculture is going to work right. Um, everything involved with creation is going to be restored. So it's a very extensive kingdom of Christ. But I thought I was just going to be on a cloud, like <laughs> strumming a harp and <laughs> contemplating my navel and all that stuff for all of eternity. Yeah. So, so, so what you're saying, you're, you're, you're talking about a, a model for eternity that is incredibly physical yeah. versus what, I mean, cartoons growing up it was always you know bugs bunny had a harp and he's drumming away like that that's the kind of thing that what you would see so so this is very different than i think what many assume right. heaven is going to be like so can you dig into that more yeah so i mean what the bible is presenting is is the restoration of all things is not only spiritual salvation which is super important but it's also the the, the resurrection of the body and the restoration of creation restoration of nations restoration of israel all those sorts of things. So when you look at the Bible, you could call it holistically, um, to, to use a, a fancier term, a new creation model approach understands that both the spiritual and the physical material realms matter. Like when you read Genesis 1 to 2, do you get the impression that the only thing that matters is the spiritual? I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a beautiful earth, creation, animals, vegetation, all that, all that sort of stuff matters. And it matters to God. And then when the fall occurs, you know, even... Even creation is affected. So what, what has ended up happening is the Bible is has, the Bible presents that what God is accomplishing eventually through Christ is very holistic and involves all realms of existence. What ended up happening, particularly as you get into the later 300s and, in, and then with theologians like Augustine and then the, the Roman Catholic tradition and then theologians like Thomas Aquinas and other medieval scholastics in like the 1200s, there started to be this shift to a basically a spiritual vision model understanding of what like heaven was like. So what ended up happening is people basically from the late 300s onward for the next thousand years or so were basically anti-material. And they thought that the restoration of things basically just had to be spiritual and that it was basically everybody would be in heaven. Uh, as, and again, heaven, heaven has, its, has its role. But a lot of people started to think that escape from planet Earth was, was, is the goal of every person. And then Thomas Aquinas, famous theologians in the, theologian in the 1200s, posited this idea of what's called an Empyrean heaven, E-M-P-Y-R-E-A-N, which basically uh, Thomas Aquinas held that the Earth would not matter anymore. Saved people would just exist beyond the universe and live in a realm of light where they were basically not even blinking an eye, just statically kind of absorbing light rays from God. And so that became very common um, in the culture and, and onwards to such an extent where like if you were to go on an internet search and type in heaven, you would see over-spiritualized views of heaven. You'd see people, you know, people becoming angels. You'd see people sitting on clouds. You have, uh, and, and basically this idea a lot of people said, I don't want to do that because that heaven sounds boring and, the, and those sorts of things. So there ended up being in the church this way over-spiritualized view of heaven 
and supposedly the the goal is you know someday you're going to die and your soul's going to go live in heaven forever and that's where you're going to be forever when in reality the biblical picture is that yes it's true if you die as a believer in the age, your spirit will go to heaven and be heaven has an important role as it is right now you would be with jesus you would be with other unbelievers waiting for the resurrection but according to the bible a revelation 510 you have it, it, we're told that the saints are going to reign upon the earth and uh, Psalm 115, I, th- I think it's that Psalm talks about that the heavens were made for the Lord, but the earth he's given to the sons of men. So man's destiny is earth, being on the earth, ruling the earth, subduing the earth. That involves earth's creatures and those sorts of things. So we think that the, the, bibli- the biblical picture is the restoration of all things in Christ is holistic in the sense that it involves spiritual salvation from sin, eternal life, relationship with God, relationship with other people. But it does involve resurrection of the body and the wiping out of disease, <laughs> and the restoration of the culture and the social realms of society, and even the political realm. Uh, we're, we're, we're told in Isaiah 9 that the, the, the government will rest upon his uh, shoulders <laughs> in reference to Christ. Uh, you read in Zechariah chapter 14, when the Lord comes, he'll be, he, he'll be king over all the earth, and his name will be the only one, and then he starts telling the nations how they have to act. So in the end, I would say even both the millennium and the eternal state that like, our existence involves resurrected bodily existence on a purged and restored earth where there's nations, ethnicities, um, godly culture, society, even political realm, if understood correctly. So basically Christ redeems everything. It's not just the spiritual salvation, but it's the restoration of the earth, its creatures, its animals, and culture, society, and the political realm in every way. So we call that a new creation model as opposed to the over-spiritualized spiritual vision model. So if you want to know more about that, that's been our book of the month for June and July is, is Dr. Vlock's new book on the new creation model. It's out at our, at our book table if you're interested in that. Uh, this question kind of builds on what you just said, which is in the eternal state, we will work. What does the Bible say the kind of work will be other than worshiping our king? Yeah, so I would say that there are there is, you know, Hebrews talks about a rest for the people of God, but I think rest often refers to like rest from the negative conditions of a cursed and fallen world. So sometimes people think, well, I'm going to must sit on, I must sit on a heavenly sofa and just rest all the time. <laughs> That's not what's going on. So in Revelation 21 verses 24 and 26, it talks about that the nations will bring their glory into the city of the new Jerusalem. So you have the, the new Jerusalem, which is a capital city, but there's people also living on the entire planet and there'll be nations and ethnicities. And we're told that the nations will bring their glory into the city. And so as I've looked at the issue of glory, uh, not only for people who would hold my view of end times, but also others as well. A lot of people think that glory refers to what the nations do. It's their cultural contributions. We're not told specifically what that is. Although if you do read some of the Isaiah kingdom passages, it does talk about precious minerals and all that sort of stuff. So it seems to me that, that, that the nations are bringing, uh, the, all of the culture that they do contributes to the welfare, to the glory of God in Christ, but also to the welfare um, of the whole planet. So I do think that, there, that people uh, in the eternal state will be serving the Lord. Uh, not only are they saved and in a right relationship with him and other people, but they're also functioning in a way where they're giving glory to God with what they do. So I don't know what that probably would include farming and architecture and music, maybe sports. We don't know that for sure. But in other words, like people are going to be doing things for the glory of God. Because remember, when God made us at creation, he made us relational, but he also made us functional. 
Like the spiritual vision model says, no, eternity must be, you're like this and you don't even blink an eye and you're just thinking or, you know, that we're not putting down thinking, but it's, it's much more than that. So I, I tend to think, and, and again, I, it's going to surprise all of us to some degree. I don't think anybody knows right now perfectly yeah. what the eternal state's going to be like, but it seems like every area of reality, culturally, socially, politically, relationally, animal kingdom, agriculture, everything is going to work as it was supposed to at that time. But I hope this is helpful thinking through like, wait a minute, I'm not going to be a disembodied spirit floating around for all of eternity. I'm actually going to be in a resurrected body in a renewed earth doing things for the glory of God as a human being. Like that is, that is, that's a vision of eternity that unfortunately is not, not what you often hear in church, but it, but as you read through the Bible, this is what you're going to pick up on. I mean, in the coming months, we're going to be in the Bible reading plan. We'll be entering the prophets. And once we get into the prophets, there's going to be a lot of this kind of talk. And especially at the end of the book of Revelation 21 and 22, same things. And this is a question on that, on, on, on that, the end of Revelation. It says, who are the nations in Revelation 21 and why do they need healing? I would, I would say the na- I would say the nations and the, there ends up being some similarity with the ethnicities and nation groups of today. So like Isaiah 19 talks about Israel, Egypt, and Assyria in the kingdom. So actually, and it actually mentions in Revelation 21, 24, that nations have kings, the nations and their kings bring their glory into, in, into the, into the new Jerusalem. So, so you end up having nations there. They end up having kings. What was the second part of the question of the... Why do they need healing? Why do they need healing? Yeah, so it's interesting about that is that I think we're told in Revelation 22 that the leaves of the tree, so the leaves of the tree of life are said to be for the healing of the nations. But that word for healing there, I don't think he... The he so when we're told in the eternal state, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. I don't think it's because they're still going to be fighting each other and they need to be bandaged up. So healing is not fixing up wounds um, I think the word is linked with the concept of therapeutic. And so it seems to be that the tree of life is involved with the nations being in harmony. So I don't think there's ever going to be sin ever again, either individually or by nations uh, in the eternal state. So the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations is God is using the tree, that tree to, uh, in order to maintain um, the harmony amongst the nations, which is pretty cool if you think about it, because... You know, in a fallen world, and even nations started in a fallen world, Genesis 10 to 11, Tower of Babel event, all that sort of thing. Like all we've known for human history is um, warfare, ethnic hatred, conquest ethic. I mean, we know how things go badly with ethnicities and nations today. To just think that, and I think that's also true for the millennium to some degree, but in the eternal state, imagine all ethnicities and all nations love God, love each other, all of their money, all of their technology, everything goes towards righteous pursuits. Could you even imagine if that happened today? Like what if all the, all, we didn't have to spend one dime on military weapons and it all went towards peaceful pursuits? Like even in this age, that would be dramatic. And so what you're going to have a situation is, is a beautiful unity and diversity because these nations and ethnicities, they're all saved the same way. So if you want to say, call people of God, that's true. There is one sense there's one people of God salvifically, salvation in Christ. But the Bible also refers many times to peoples of God, nations, and that sort of thing. And that's referring to ethnic national diversity. One of the most beautiful things I think about the eternal state is you're going to see all peoples of different ethnicities and nations 
loving God, loving each other, and all of their culture and everything they do is for the glory of God and for the love of other people. I think that's going to be one of the coolest things about the eternal state because we can't even fathom that now. Like I said, we live in ethnic hatred and conquest ethic and all this stuff right now. So again, that's another thing God is accomplishing through Christ is restoration of nations and how beautiful that'll look. And that is something that God accomplishes, yeah. not something that Christians yeah, absolutely. accomplish in yeah. this age. God in Christ <laughs> accomplished that. And I would even say the cross is central to that. Like, in other words, every single person <laughs> in the saved in the eternal state, they're there because of the cross. And so you have to come via the cross in order to even experience that situation there. So it is God in Christ make it happen. We've talked a lot about what we'll be doing during the eternal state, and there are a couple more questions on that. But this question is, will the Holy Spirit be with us in the new heaven? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, so how about the Trinity and the Holy Spirit in the eternal state? Um, I would uh, the, 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 Let's go from what we do know. Like, we are told in Revelation 22 that in the, new, the capital city, New Jerusalem, that there's a throne where you have of God and of the Lamb. So you end up having uh, the, the first two members of the Trinity, the Father and the Son, sharing the same throne in the new Jerusalem. So they're there. So in other words, Jesus, resurrected Jesus is there. Um, when it comes to the perception of God the Father, it's a little bit harder to know whether there's some kind of sense in which we see him or whether we perceive him through the eyes of our heart. There's actually been papers and stuff written. How do we perceive God the Father in the eternal state? But since the question is dealing with the Holy Spirit, um, it doesn't say the Holy Spirit's on the throne like it does with the first two members of the Trinity. My guess is, is that one of the Holy Spirit's main roles is with the new, is with the new covenant that ever, ever since uh, basically Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit has been involved with indwe- permanently indwelling believers, enabling them to obey God as they should. And so I, I, I personally think that the Holy Spirit's role, even in eternity, is the Holy Spirit still indwelling all of us, which guarantees that everything is going to go well. There's going to be no second cause. There's not going to be another fall of mankind or anything like that. So if I, if I had to, I don't know if guess is the right word. I know for sure the father and the son are in the center of the new Jerusalem on, on that throne uh, that's talked about there. And I think the Holy Spirit is still present through the indwelling of the saints. And there'll be, be maybe more to that. I'm just saying that seems to be one thing that we can know for sure. This question is, uh, are there vying for rewards in the eternal state or, or not? So vying for rewards in the yeah. eternal state, I would say... I would say the rewards, like for the church, I think we're going to know at the time of the rapture with the Bema Seat Judgment in heaven, what our rewards are going to be for the millennium in the eternal state. I, probably at the second coming when it comes to Old Testament saints and martyred tribulation saints. I, in other words, I think it's the judgments associated with the return of Christ where believers will know their destiny, you know, kind of what they're going to be doing as they rule the nations, Revelation 2, 26 to 27. So I, 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 don't, I, I probably wouldn't say there's going to be vying for rewards in the eternal state because I think that will already be determined. And I will say there won't be jealousy. <laughs> so in other words, I don't think everybody's doing the same thing. And I don't think rewards are all equal. That's affected by how we live for Christ now. Um, but we will all be perfectly content and happy with our, our role, our function, our relationship with God and others. And maybe uh, functional things may be different for, for others, perhaps, but we'll all be happy. This question is, how will the new earth differ from the earth before the fall? Since God's not a creator of evil, where there be potential for another fall in the new earth? Yeah, so the first part of it, how would the, how would like the eternal state earth differ from like before the fall? Yes. 
Um, I do believe there is an escalation. So in other words, like, I don't think it's, it's, it's right to say, well, Revelation 21, 22 is exactly what it was like before the fall. It, it seems like in, Revel- in Genesis 1 to 2, man's call, you know, he's originally placed in Eden, but he's supposed to rule the entire earth. So we just don't see that come about like it should. So even though in one sense, it's what it should be, man, remember when God tells man to rule the earth and to subdue it, and he also tells him to, to take care of the ground, to cultivate it. Like those are very active things that never got done right. <laughs> So I, I think when you get to the millennium, then the eternal state, you're actually seeing the fullness of God's people in the power of God, making every area of existence, reality, creation, functioning like it should. So thus what you will see in Revelation 21 and 22 is much greater than the Genesis 1 to 2 situation. But what was the last part of the question? There was another part. Is there potential for another fall no. in the new earth? No, I'd say there's no potential for another fall because I would just say, the work of Christ and the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit um, would not allow that. And there's no indication in Revelation 21 and 22, there's going to be another fall. All people have trusted in Christ. They have eternal life. Eternal life cannot be lost. Everybody in the eternal state is saved. The Holy Spirit is working in every believer at that particular time. So there, there's no repeat of the fall. This question is, Scripture says that in the New Jerusalem, the gates are always open. Do we have any idea what we will be doing outside of the New Jerusalem? Will there be housing work outside? You've answered some of that, but there's yeah. that the the gates are always open. Yeah. So I think the I mean the gates I think are literal, but they're also they also represent something too. So it is a literal city with literal gates, but unlike in a fallen world, where oftentimes you have to shore up and blockade so enemies can't come in, the city is is lit up by the by the presence of God. I think the, the, the open gates are both literal and symbolic in the sense that they represent everybody's welcome. So I do think, now it's hard to get in specifically into details and known exactly. Um, the, the New Jerusalem is roughly half the size of the United States. And there's going to be a lot of people living in it. I think it's everybody's home. But because we are told in Revelation 21 and 22 that the nations will bring their glory into the city, it seems like there's nations living outside of it. Now, again, all those nations would be believers. So I do think there's activity that's outside of it. We've already talked about the issue. They're going to bring their, their glory into the city. So I think nations are doing what nations do. I think they're farming. I think they're building houses. I think they're, you know, doing healthy pursuits of all the environment that, that God has made. And it's, it's done in a perfect way. So, so, we, so we'll have a, a home in the New Jerusalem. And then maybe like a vacation home. There you go. Yeah. So I do. I I mean, a little bit. It's like, yeah. (laughs) So in one sense, I think the, uh, it's everybody's home. So I don't think it's going to be the case. Like I don't get to live in the new, I mean, I don't think it's like that. I I think, I think every believer in the the new Jerusalem is their home, but I don't think that bars the fact that there can be real activity done outside of it. So it all works together. Cause remember you have a new Jerusalem. Remember it's this earth purged and restored. And even though the New Jerusalem is huge, it's half the size of the United States. There's a lot more to the earth than half the size of the United States as it is right now. So it seems like uh, perhaps we're, I mean, I'm just kind of guessing, perhaps we live some of our time outside the city. Sometimes we're living in it. I mean, but it all belongs to all of us. This question is, uh, Pastor Hay preached last Sunday, Revelation 21, after the millennial kingdom, when we enter the eternal state, Bible says that mourning will cease. Yeah. But does that mean that during the millennium there's mourning and maybe mourning about lost loved ones and things of that nature? But by the, but when we enter the eternal state, that's when we're not going to mourn. 
anymore. Have you, have you looked? Yeah, yeah. So I would say I think the millennium is an incredibly great experience for believers during that time. So, and there's even resurrection for the church and certain people. I, I tend to view the millennium as the is. Remember, there there's a millennial kingdom and there's an eternal state kingdom, and that's all in the age to come. I tend to view like the millennium as kind of like the first fruits or the first phase of the kingdom, which eventually leads to the eternal state. So I think there ends up being things that are true of the eternal state that are also true to the true of the millennium. So I would say the millennium is a time of joy and God. I mean, you actually have those terms used of the kingdom, <laughs> the millennial kingdom and like Isaiah passages and stuff. So I, I think the millennium is overwhelmingly positive, but, but yet you still have people born in that that need to come to faith. We're told in Isaiah 65, if anyone dies at the age of 100, they'll be thought accursed. So what I would say is I think the millennium is a time of joy and happiness, but it's permanent perfectly in every sense in the eternal state. So it's not the case in the millennium. There's still a lot of crying and people being upset and all this sort of stuff. It's primarily happy, but it's actually totally perfect in the eternal kingdom. So if people are familiar with some of the language uh, ideas going on online right now, debates back and forth, uh, the view that, that you've been talking about, that we've all been talking about over the past month or so, has been uh, characterized as loser theology. Yeah. So how would you respond to that characterization mm-hmm. of our view of eschatology? Well, first of all, I would just say, does anybody feel like we've been talking about loser theology and <laughs> what we've been talking about today or in the last section? Yeah, there are some who would say, well, if you, there, um, there, is a, there is a sense in which this age in which we're in, we're promised in this age you will have tribulation. So think of the age that we're in. There is still tribulation. There is still death. There is sorrow. We have joy in Christ. There, there, there's victory spiritually and with other believers and those sorts of, but we still live in a world where Satan's doing his damage. The world is, is messed up and those sorts of things. So, so the thing is, is like the, the Bible does present a picture where we are, we need the return of Christ in order for everything to get fixed. Uh, the structures of evil are so deep in, in our world that even though we as the church and we as individual believers um, are saved in Christ and we have all these spiritual blessings, there's still a lot of evil going on. So our view holds that we need Jesus to come again. We need Jesus boots on the ground to root out all the evil structures everywhere, every inch of planet earth, and then establish a righteous kingdom where Jesus reigns and he's sharing that reign with those who are his. Like that's not loser theology to me. I mean, that is a, because <laughs> uh, we're looking forward to a very powerful kingdom of Christ and then eternal state after that. So some people have said that if you don't believe that the church wins in this age before the second coming of Christ, that that's kind of like a loser theology. Like you're, you're just giving into the culture and we, we, we should be out there basically bringing in a successful kingdom of, through Christ and the Holy Spirit in this age. And so um, the Bible doesn't teach that. I, 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 although it, it, uh, it may seem nice to some to think that the church can can restore the world before Christ comes again. That's not the case biblically. So I think the thing we have to understand is no, we do not hold to a loser theology. Um, we hold to the great truths we have in Christ, the spiritual victories that we have right now, the love that we have for each other and those sorts of things. We try to be salt and light in a decaying world, um, but we're anticipating the victory that Christ brings. Uh, Revelation two twenty six to 27, the one who overcomes, I will grant him authority over the nations. And so we are anticipating um, that any moment coming of Christ and the outbreak of the day of the Lord that will lead to his kingdom. And I think that's an optimistic view of end times. 
And so, but this view is also uh, critiqued by saying that it doesn't care and doesn't do anything about evil in this life. Uh, working in the culture to try to bring about righteousness is like uh, polishing brass on the Titanic as it's going down. Like, what's the point in doing that? Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's often yeah, is what that's said about stated. this view. Yeah. How do you respond to that? I would say is, I mean, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, we're called to be salt and light to a decaying world. So the assumption when Jesus makes that statement is we're in a dark world and we're in a decaying world. <laughs> so, so be a light. He's the light of the world. And he allows us to be light and he allows us to be salt, a preservative in a decaying world. Um, when you read the churches of Revelation 2 to 3, those are not churches that are reigning in the kingdom yet. They're told to, they're under persecution and hard times. They're told to overcome because if they do, they will sit with Christ on his throne. They will rule the nations. That's the Revelation 2, 26 to 27 and Revelation uh, 3, 21. So I would say because all of God's creation matters and because God has made us holistically, we do care about the societal realm. We care about the cultural realm. We care about the political realm. And as much as we can take salt and light to those areas, we need to be doing that. So we do not just stick our head in the sands and say, I only care about singing songs at church on Sundays. I don't care about anything else. We are to be salt and light. We're to take our Christianity and our biblical worldview to every area of existence. And uh, within the confines of the Great Commission of, of taking Christ to the world, we, we should try to have an impact in areas that we can. But we also understand this is a deeply evil world. It is, it is, it is an e a present evil age <laughs> and that we are looking forward to Christ coming again to root out the evil and establish a righteous kingdom on earth. So I think that's the balance. Just like Christ rescues uh, humanity spiritually, it's not us and Christ doing that. If he does that spiritually, so too he will do that physically right. without us. He will do that for us, right. not with us. Yeah, for us, and then we'll participate in what he does. Yeah, God's plans occur in, in phases and stages sometimes, and this is the age where we have great spiritual blessings in Christ, salvation, regeneration, justification, those sorts of things. But this is also the era where Satan prowls about, seeking whom he may devour, and we have uh, evil forces that are involved in all levels, and we have a deeply evil world. And so we're looking forward to the stage to come where Christ removes all that, but it, it, we need the second coming for that to occur. And I think there's all kinds of Bible passages that teach that. You need, you need Christ on the earth for this world to be restored totally. And now you know why he's called the theology ninja, the theological ninja. So I've just double-checked it. This is the last question. So we have done all 91 questions and some others that I added. So uh, last question, having listened to the end time series and taken to heart all the ramifications of these truths as believers, how should we then live? Yeah, I think it's basically the, uh, I, I maybe mean, a good place to go is that second Peter three passage where it's talking about, um, it's talking about the day of the Lord and the new heavens and the new earth. So in, 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 in second Peter so 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be, I think it's better understanding, is manifested or discovered. But notice, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, etc.? So basically, the day of the Lord and the coming new earth should be a motivation for godliness in this age. So first of all, it is a motivation for godliness. This helps us when we're dealing with the evil and the tragedies in the world. It helps us when the disease hits our family, when death hits our family, 
we can become overwhelmed with sorrow, but Christ says he's overcome everything. And so that gives us hope and joy in a very dark, evil world that good wins. And then I would just say too, again, remember that what's playing out in the Bible is a storyline, not a fictional storyline, but a true storyline that has a beginning, a middle, and then a culmination. And so understanding that what we call the end of the story doesn't mean end of time, but the end of the story is a very important part of our Christian worldview. So not only should it encourage us individually, but we have to make sure that we understand all of the Bible storyline. And there's a lot of stuff about the end that's discussed in scripture. And we need to be trying to understand it as much as we can. Thank you very much. Thank for you this for the opportunity. Five service gauntlet. It's been my pleasure. Answering. This has been a, a great time. Great and I've loved all the, all the questions. Yeah. And on the follow-up questions yeah. afterwards. Absolutely. Yeah. And so um, I hope this has been helpful. And I hope it's something that, um, that you're looking at and you're saying, gosh, I, I'm glad that I did that. If you're, if you're going, gosh, I'm, I'm glad it's over, just know <laughs> next week we'll be back in John chapter 6. We've been continuing our, our look at the book of John. So to, to build off of what Dr. Vlock just said, I hope that this look at end times has solidified some things for you like God is sovereign that he has control over history, regardless of the, the evil that seems so strong right now, that there is a real sense that God is in control. And you can see that in prophecy, also that God is good, that you understand prophecy correctly. You understand that, that evil has an expiration date, that though, though the wrong seems oh so strong, Christ is still the ruler, that one day he will win, that there is an absolute sense that, that, that he is going to rule and reign over this world. And that we can trust in that even in the midst of the difficulties that we all face right now. All right, let me pray and then we are dismissed. Father, it is incredible to read your word. You give history in advance. And what you say about that is that that proves that you are God. Because when that, his, when that, when that prophecy becomes history... We all look at that and say, your word is true. That has happened throughout the Old Testament where you made a, where, where, where there was a prophecy and it was fulfilled all in the Old Testament, all fulfilled literally exactly as you said it would be. And that's why we await a future where everything you promised will be fulfilled exactly as you said it would. That allows us to trust you. It allows us to understand that you didn't say one thing and then you're going to change your mind. But like we sang earlier, great is your faithfulness. That is a screaming theme when it comes to Bible prophecy, that we can trust you because you're faithful. So please use these truths not just to fill our heads with information, which is important, but use this information to transform our lives so that we live in light of these truths. Pray these things for our good, and for the glory of your name. Amen. Hey, thanks for tuning in to our Redeemer YouTube channel. If this is helpful for you, please make sure that you like this video, smash the subscribe button, and hit that bell icon. It will help us reach more people with biblical truth. Thank you so much.